Good evening. Hello. Welcome to another edition of Atlas Information Live. Coming to you on this Wednesday night. We are going to, this evening, take a little diversion, although we've, we were steered in this direction over the last few live streams because we were discussing satire and propaganda and, and films came up, specifically the films Don't Look Up and, and The Last Duel. And on Monday, we had a rather lengthy live stream at 2 in the afternoon Eastern, 7, 7 p.m. Uh, Greenwich Mean Time. And we started getting into some of the more esoteric symbology and allegory at play in The Last Duel. And as we were going through that live stream, we felt this might be a good opportunity to revisit some of Ridley Scott's other historical dramas, historical pieces. And sure enough, tonight's topic was born because last Wednesday we were covering what to do when inspiration fails. So why not take an opportunity to discuss some art, some film, which clearly didn't fail and the inspiration didn't fail because there are divinely inspired esoteric messages embedded in the, in the films, whether or not the filmmakers are aware of it. And this is important to know that many artists receive inspiration all the time and they just assume that it's their idea, right? They don't, they don't process it. They don't think about their higher self. They don't remember their divine mother. They don't, they might be atheists or they might be whatever they are. It doesn't mean that they can't be vessels and tools and messengers of the logos because their individual monad is still here doing its work through them. They just might be asleep. They just might not be aware. They might receive inspiration, ideas for stories, etc. And it comes to them and they might just think, well, that was my idea. I did that. I made that happen, which is just what, where they are at. But when you see truth in film, in stories, literature, music, opera, and you connect on deeper levels with these works, you are being touched by the divine. And the divine made its way into those works through their mortal vessels, through writers, through directors, through designers, through actors, through costume designers, uh, yeah, art designers, cinematographers, the whole, the whole gambit. It's not a requirement that vessels and messengers 
acknowledge their higher self. It's not a requirement. From the, the God works with the clay that's on the wheel. The potter works with the clay that's on the wheel. And if the clay isn't perfect, that which, that's what you have to work with. But that doesn't mean that just because someone is completely asleep or just because someone takes credit for their work instead of acknowledging their innermost essence of divinity who, who gave them that, who, that, that flowed to them and through them into the world. Just because someone doesn't acknowledge that doesn't mean that it's not so. Or just because someone denies it, because that is also possible where people will say, no, 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 it's, I'm, I'm the artist. I, it's all me. It's all me. It came from my mind. It came from my emotions. It's, 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 my, you know, it's my suffering. It was my life's experience. It was my traumas and sufferings and pain and whatever that I transformed into this art. Well, if that's what they want to believe, good. If they want to lock out their divine mother from the process, who actually orchestrated all of their life and their suffering and their traumas and everything else, which gave them the material, which they believe they put all together into this artwork. Well, they did put it all together into their artwork, but to what degree they were listening to their own innermost and their, to what degree they were receiving divine inspiration. If someone is not observing themselves, if someone is not remembering themselves, they just take it for granted. Stuff, stuff comes to you. Stuff came into my head. It just I was just in the shower one day and poof, there it was. There was th this idea for this or that or this or that or the other thing. So the artistic process, even though every artist will describe it in a different way, but the ones who are truly capable and truly honest with themselves and truly honest with the world will say, you know, I don't write the books. I don't make the films. I'm following a source of inspiration that's, that's coming through me, that's inside me. Even if they don't know how to categorize it, maybe they just call it God. Maybe they just call it their muses. Maybe they, just, maybe they don't even know it. Maybe they just call it their unconscious mind or subconscious mind, because you'll hear that as well. Regardless, we want to take this opportunity to have a more relaxed live stream and have a little bit different change of pace and talk about something that we happen to be passionate about, which are uh, film and filmmaking and the fact that this year Ridley Scott turned 83 years old, the director of The Last Duel and Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven, which are, in our opinion, uh, three of his greatest films, along with Blade Runner and, uh, and Alien and Legend. And those were all back in the late 70s, early 80s. But we feel his masterpieces are his period works. Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, and now The Last Duel. And they are his masterpieces and his masterworks 
precisely because they encode and embody timeless universal truths, universal esoteric teachings. And we felt this was a perfect opportunity not because we had been having these conversations about the last duel. This was, this was a good opportunity to, to synthesize it and bring the last duel together with, with Ridley Scott's other well-known and much beloved period pieces. And look at how each one of these films takes a different approach, a different allegorical and different symbolic approach to ultimately the same topic, the same subjects. And really, the subject comes down to uh, dominion over one's self and over one's destiny. So let's get into it without further ado. Oh, actually, before we get into it, allow us to share with you the link to the live stream. You are more than welcome to hop on and ask questions or make comments and participate. Uh, we have been finding it a fairly, a fairly good process and a fairly good way to have some get some much needed interactivity going in these uh, in these live streams. The chat, is, of course, is also available to you as always, and we will try to get to every single one of them as they arise. But if you want to pop on, you don't have to turn on your camera. You can come on audio only if you wish. But if you want, you can turn on your webcam and come and join the uh, the live stream. You're more than welcome. You're more than welcome. So, with that said, The Last Duel, if you don't know, is based on a true story. It's about... Uh, now, forgive us, some of the names and places and stuff, we we didn't commit to memory and we will, we will forget. Um, we'll not be able to... Uh, um, we can call them up on on internet on Google if necessary, but um, we'll just speak in general terms. Uh, take it. The history is of the last duel which took place in 14th century France between two noblemen, a knight, and a squire. We're, we're both noble. Only one was knighted though at the time, and the duel was over an accusation of rape. It turns out that. The two noblemen who are dueling, those are Matt Damon's character and Adam Driver's character. These two gentlemen. They were actually uh, friends. They knew one another and they were friends. And according to Matt Damon's wife, while he was away on a military campaign, his friend, Adam Driver, entered into her, into their house against her will and raped her. Now, the interesting thing about the film is that the film is broken up into a three-part uh, structure, three acts. 
as most films are. The difference being that each act of the film tells the same story from a different perspective. The same story is told three times, only once from Matt Damon's character's perspective, once from Adam Driver's character's perspective, and once from Jodie Comer's character's perspective, the wife's perspective. This narrative structure has been used before, perhaps most notably in the Akira Kurosawa film, the Japanese film by Akira Kurosawa called Rashomon, which tells the tale of a, a crime uh, in, in feudal Japan, and it's likewise structured around the question of what really took place. And so Akira Kurosawa made the film in much the same way, where it's broken up into three parts, and each we, we see the story from each of these three characters' perspectives. So this is not a new conceit in, in filmmaking. But it's very effective, especially given the subject matter, which is the, you might call it in contemporary parlance, the, the Me Too issue. A fact that a woman has been raped and she demands justice. And it's her word against his word. And who are you going to believe and why? So the film tries to take a balanced approach and uh, tries to allow you, the viewer, to make up your own mind. Well, all of that is on, oh, we should mention what's very important uh, at this time in history, women in France and most of Europe, probably most places around the world, were not so much considered persons under the law as they were considered chattel uh, property. A woman was either owned by her father or owned by her husband. And so the charge of rape at this time, at this period in history, was in fact more uh, of a wrongdoing against the husband than it was the woman if you can try to wrap your head around the absurdity of that. But legally, under the law, because she was considered property, a violation of a man's wife was a violation of his property and therefore was a property crime against him. In addition, it should be noted that the law for falsely accusing a nobleman of rape was the death penalty. So let us repeat that because it's worth repeating. The penalty for falsely accusing a nobleman of rape was to be sentenced to burn to death. That's, that's what women faced if they came forward. If a woman came forward to accuse a man of raping her and she and he was found to be innocent in what amounted to a court, 
a courtroom in those days. And the church played a heavy-handed role in that process. If she was found to be, if the charges were dropped, so then she would immediately be indicted for having brought false charges and borne false witness against a nobleman, and the penalty for that was death. And not just death, but again, in 14th century France, to be burned at the stake. So if you want to talk about intimidation and fear, and using fear to protect the interests of a certain class, well, can you get... Can you get much more decentivized to accuse someone of a crime? Especially if it's your word against his, and he's a nobleman, and he's a powerful nobleman with powerful friends. For instance, this is Jody Comer, by the way. That's uh, Well, we'll get to that. Uh, in this image, we see Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. And Ben Affleck plays a particularly uh, despicable and slimy nobleman. He is a friend of Adam Driver, the man accused of the rape. And Adam Driver is, for him, a uh, uh, Adam Driver has this nobleman's favor. This nobleman rules the province that both Matt Damon and Adam Driver and Jody Comer are a member of. Their estate, Matt Damon's estate, falls under the jurisdiction of Ben Affleck and his, his uh, fiefdom. So Adam Driver works for Ben Affleck, but they're also friends. They're also kind of sleazy, slimy friends. They like to partake in debauchery together. Uh, and we get to see that in the film of just their, their kind of their lifestyle. And, and Adam Driver's character is well known to be a womanizer and um, perhaps even considered to be a sexual predator under medieval uh, middle age morality. Because of course, at least in public, the appearances were of a much more uh, propriety driven culture. Uh, sex was not as liberal and liberalized as it's been since the 60s. It was a very different time so having said that, the movie seems to suggest that let's not be naive. Things were happening. It's just that they were happening behind closed doors, secretly in bedchambers, and it was just not publicized because it was a faux pas. And of course, the church didn't, wouldn't, wouldn't allow for such things to be out in the open, out in the public. But of course, behind closed doors, it was business as usual, just as it is today. So all of that is on the surface level story of the actual historical events. Now, what we're really looking at here is an allegory about the abuse, the domination of, the abuse of, and the, for lack of a better term, the manhandling of the divine feminine. 
we have in uh, we have in Adam Driver's character. This is Adam Driver with Ben Affleck and Ridley Scott. By the way, that's Ridley Scott here. He's 83 or maybe 82 in this photo. We have in the character of Adam Driver, he is the one who's accused of rape. And he has beholden himself, he's basically sold himself to his lord, Ben Affleck. We have the false self. The false self who's motivated by the same debauchery as motivates his lord. In other words, Ben Affleck represents the shaitan, the ego, the amalgamation of all our individual egos, embodied, personified. That's Ben Affleck's character, that slimy, no good lord that wants to lord over everything, the lands and everything in it, all the property in it. And he wants all the taxes, but he also wants his, he's also, he, he wants his drink, he wants his sex, and he wants Adam Driver to participate and be his friend, be his companion. He wants to be able to live vicariously through Adam Driver and his, and his conquests. On the other side, of course, it follows. We have Matt Damon's character, who's the husband, who is the one who ultimately fights for the honor, for the truth, and to defend uh, his wife. Matt Damon challenges, challenges Adam Driver to a duel. In addition to that, there's more to this story. Through the machinations of this evil character here, this, this Lord, uh, Adam Driver is able to swindle land away from Matt Damon. It's a, it, medieval politics and land ownership and all this kind of stuff, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to, to relay all of it, but it's not all that important. Just know that this fellow, Adam Driver, who, who was Matt Damon's friend, actually swindles him out of, out of some very um, valuable land and then rapes his wife. Matt Damon, who only wants to serve his king, not... Not uh, Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck is the Lord, but Matt Damon is knighted and he answers directly to the king. The Lord of Lords, if you will. The Logos. That immediately creates a dichotomy and it sets up the, it sets the stage for the esoteric battle that's about to take place between the true self And the false self who works for the individual shaitan, the amalgamation of all the egos. Because Adam Driver is what he is. He is installed into his position. He is given his privileges. He is given his power and privileges 
and everything by virtue of the Lord of the fiefdom for whom he works. Adam Driver is the intellect and the emotions and the physical body. Although the land itself and uh, 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 Jody Cummer, the wife, they, they represent the physical body and all the other faculties as well because that's who the false self abuses. That's what the false self wants to take for itself and claim dominion over. So the false self says, this is my body. The false self says, this is my mind. This is my heart. And that, that my desires are mine. And I'm going to use my body, my mind, and my heart to fulfill my desires. That's all the false self. But it's very much empowered by the dark lord, the evil lord in the background. That's our individual shaitan, the egos, the amalgamation of all our, of our egos that fill our head with these ideas and that create this sense of false, this, this false sense of self. And Jodi Kummer being the female here, she's the divine feminine, she's the sexual force. She's the one who was raped. Adam Driver rapes her at the trial. He says it was consensual. She says it wasn't. That's his word against hers. And this is ultimately what the false self and our egos desire, is our sexual energy. That and our consciousness, our psyche. They want to dominate. They want to control. They want to own. They want to be lord over all of our property. And for us, our property, everything that we have, comes from our Divine Mother. Divine Mother Nature, our body, our mind, our heart. These are all given to us by our Divine Mother as is our sexual force, as is our psyche, our soul, our divine soul consciousness. It's all given to us to manage as anyone. And as, for example, Matt Damon manages his estate along and together with his wife to intelligently manage that which are, which are in our care. And in the Middle Ages, right, uh, women were very much, the absurdity of it was that they weren't deemed persons so much as they were chattel, so much as they were property. They were very much in the care of their husbands. They were part of the estate. Now, we're not saying that's a good thing, but in the context of the time period, the context of the allegory, it is all part and parcel with that which Matt Damon recognizes as in his care, that which he is responsible for. He's responsible for his estate, including his wife and her honor, 
that, that she not be violated just as anything else on his estate not be violated because he is responsible for that. He's responsible for collecting the rents. He's responsible for delivering those rents, etc., etc. In that feudal hierarchical system, just as there is a hierarchical system in the supernal worlds, and there is a hierarchical system that we, the mortal vessel, have our place in, and that our innermost being has a place in. And the being of our being, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Logos, the Cosmic Christ, has its place in. But the false self and the egos, they want to violate, they want to take, they want to dominate. And they don't care how they spoil that which they take. Because they spoil what they take. In ancient military parlance, the plunder that a victorious army would gain from the lands, the property of the conquered peoples, they, they called them the spoils. Bring home the spoils. That which has been spoiled, that's which has been taken, conquered. And that is what our egos and a false self wants to do. It wants to conquer us. It wants to take and spoil our consciousness. It wants to take and spoil our sexual energy. When we are consumed by lust and fornicating, we might think that we're having sex, but in truth, we are being raped. Lust, the demon of lust, is spoiling us, is dominating us, is taking us from behind, sodomizing us. That's what's taking place. And our sexual energy is inverted. It is spoiled because it was taken without our knowledge or consent. Because you just think you're having sex. You just think you're pleasuring yourself and your partner. You're not aware of the demon that is pleasuring itself at your, at your expense. And at the expense of crystallizing more egos crystallizing more desire. The, this is a beautiful uh, scene, a beautiful shot of Matt Damon together with his wife. And the logo for the film has these two swords, one pointing up and one pointing down. And there was no particular reason they had to go with that design, that motif. But clearly, it just felt right to the designer and whoever made the ultimate decision to go with that. But it's this way or this way. 
It's very much a to be or not to be story. And it's told in three parts in a trinity between the true self, the false self, and the divine mother in the psyche, the consciousness. In other words, that which is on the block, that which is at, at stake. And not just her honor, but her actual existence. Because if she's proven wrong, if she's proven to have lied and borne false witness, then she'll be consumed in the flames. In other words, if, if the false self wins the duel between the true self and the false self, if desire and intellectualism and rationalization and justification and, and all those tricks and traps of the ego defeat the will of the true self, the will of the being, then our Divine Mother Devi Kundalini Shakti and our body and all our gifts and all of our lands and everything are forfeit. And we will burn in flames in accordance with the law of involution and the second death. This is Ridley Scott's most recent film, released in 2021. But his first foray, really, into this period filmmaking was also um, quite possibly his masterpiece, certainly the film that he won the most Oscars for. And you may be familiar with it. This is Gladiator on the Tree of Life. This comes from our article, Gladiator Unmasked. And we have two articles on the blog, Gladiator Unmasked, part one and part two. And this is possible, this can be done with many films where we can take the characters and, and map them onto the tree of life. Each character represents a different aspect, a different sephira on the tree of life. And here again, it is a very similar tale. Except instead of the there is also a woman involved. The, there's two women involved, in fact. There is Maximus's wife, who represents the Divine Mother, but there is also, there's also Yusilla, which is Commodus's sister, which is which, who becomes Maximus's love interest, or was a former flame. So there's the women all, this is the sexual force in Yasad, the Kundalini in the ninth sphere. Because we have our divine mother, Bina, up in the tree of life. And then we have Lucilla. Now, if you recall in the film, Maximus's wife and his son are crucified. 
and their and his home is burned and he is forced he's he's he becomes a slave he becomes picked up by slave traders and he's taken to the provinces to become a gladiator he's made to become a gladiator and he has to fight his way back to rome and he is offered an opportunity to regain his honor and not just that but to save rome from commodus who kills marcus aurelius the emperor and commodus assumes the role of emperor all these characters represent different aspects of the tree of life and different aspects of our inner of our of our beingness of our metaphysical physiognomy but in gladiator the locations can also be mapped onto the tree of life these trees of life are on our blog under the uh, gladiator unmasked and gladiator unmasked 2 articles so obviously we have at the very top the christ consciousness the upper trinity of the tree of life that's represented by rome the glory of rome there's a quote from the movie where uh maximus says rome is the light there's also home uh maximus's home which represents dat and again the other the other locations all map onto the tree of life so there is this progression from the bottom germania up the tree of life to, until we eventually end in rome and restoring the glory of rome by working in um by working in the uh the 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 ninth sphere the legionnaires camp which is where the battleground is but also the other battleground which is the gladiatorial arena and those two are related because one is willpower and the other is the sexual force the legionnaires camp is where maximus meets lucilla his former romantic flame and in the Colosseum is where maximus must prove his heroism and he must survive in the Colosseum. so it's all it requires all his willpower to defeat the adversaries in the Colosseum and eventually defeat Commodus himself. And Commodus is uh, the ego. The, 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 and the, all the, the four bodies of sin. So he is the lunar mental body, the lunar astral body, and the lunar physical body, and the lunar vital body, because Commodus infects all of it. That's why it's, it's, it's Rome's false self, in other words. Because Commodus is the false emperor. And he has, in the Senate, he has the corrupt senators on his side. So he has the mental body, the corrupt, the corrupted intellect on his side. Just as he uses the Colosseum and the, the, the games to, to manipulate the mob that's rep, that represents the astral body. And you can see that in the scenes in Gladiator where you see Commodus's reaction to the action that's taking place on the field 
it's a visceral emotional indulgence of violence etc but here in the monad we have the atmic body represented by marcus aurelius the true the true emperor of rome the one who wants to give back rome's true self he tells maximus his tent in germania he says how will how will history remember me will i be remembered as the philosopher the scholar the tyrant or will i be the emperor that gave back rome's true self and maximus says i have seen much of the world it is brutal and it is savage and it is dark rome is the light and marcus aurelius responds and yet you have never been there you have not seen the corruption so that's when marcus aurelius asks maximus to be the protector of rome to take command of the armies of rome and take command and to hold the seat of the empire in trust until the senate is ready to rule again because rome is to be a republic again and rome's true self is to be restored that was marcus aurelius's vision for rome and maximus the causal body the human soul willpower was the vehicle that the being uses the true the, the the human soul the true self is the one who works for our innermost being marcus uh, our innermost being maximus was charged with this by marcus aurelius but before maximus can enact marcus aurelius's will commodus comes and murders marcus aurelius and assumes power and says i am the emperor i am the new emperor and what's the first thing he does he turns to maximus and he says your emperor asks for your loyalty maximus and when maximus doesn't give it commodus tries to have him killed when our ego the false self goes after our willpower first it tries to corrupt our willpower it tries to install its own ill will our inner commodus comes to our will and says your emperor asks for your loyalty And if we don't give it, we don't give in. We don't give in to ill will. Well, Commodus doesn't like that. So what's he going to do? He's going to try to have us killed, our willpower killed. So that's, we all know what that's like. We all experience that. When our willpower is drained, is sucked out of us. We can't muster up the willpower. Where did it go? Where's our willpower? And we have our mind chattering away, rationalizing and justifying, oh, no, 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 it's fine. You've, you've earned it. You deserved it. 
rationalizing this, rationalizing that, justifying this, justifying that. And then we have our emotions, you know, going along. This is perhaps, if, if anybody has any challenges whatsoever with emotional eating or binge eating or anything like that or drinking or any type of, um, any type of thing or smoking or any other type of vice where your willpower is, is, is challenged and your willpower is drained away and then you find yourself with no willpower falling into these repeated patterns of is it eating or whatever vice that that your the ego is deciding that's going to use against you through one of the four or all of the four bodies of sin ultimately it wants your your vital body it wants your sexual force in the vital body right just as commodus wants to have an incestuous relationship with his own sister and he he uses her son lucius who's heir to the throne right that represents our innermost intimate christ the 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 seed the spark of our innermost intimate christ the essence as bait and as uh, bargaining chip as leverage what's oh so this is just this slide is just showing how this is nothing new and remember we mentioned how you can map characters onto the tree of life in multiple different mythologies and multiple different narratives this is a very common thing. You can do it with Shakespearean plays. You can do it with opera. This is a universe. You can do it in, with Lord of the Rings. It's a universal trope. Because, again, this all relates actually to the hero's journey, but the hero's journey that's taking place inside of us, inside of our psyche, inside of our being. Our heroic journey against the forces of darkness, against the dark side. Here we have Star Wars. And then here we have Lion King and etc. So, um, and the reason why you say it's not just ancient wisdom, because of course these are contemporary, contemporary mythologies. These are all films that were made in, in our lifetime. So the past 40, sometime in the past 45 years. And young people might think that's ancient history, but we know that it's not ancient history. It's, it's modern history. It's contemporary history. These are contemporary mythologies. And they encode all of these timeless universal truths, like, for example, the tree, the tree of life. And the struggle between the dark side and the light side, the false self and the true self. The human soul who's trying to fight and struggle to save the galaxy, to save the kingdom, to save Pride Rock, to save Rome, to, to, to restore Rome's true self. And we do that with willpower. Right? In the same way that Simba must restore Pride Rock. That's with willpower. That's with willpower we defeat our inner scar. Just as Luke Skywalker must defeat the Emperor and Darth Vader, the dark side, to bring peace and order to the galaxy. So Luke Skywalker, willpower. Simba, willpower. Maximus, willpower. The human soul. This is what we need to develop. 
This is what we need to be in service of our innermost being, our true self. And in Gladiator, oh, just briefly, briefly, in terms of symbols, uh, this is one which perhaps easily gets missed or obscured. But here we have a coded uh, tree of life on Maximus's armor. Now, this is the armor that is given to him by Prospero. And we'll get into exactly who Prospero and is. Prospero is the Buddhic, bo the Buddhic body, the divine soul. So Prospero and Marcus Aurelius are, are Maximus's mentors. So they are above him. They are the ones who walk the path before him, his senseis, his mentors, whatever you want to think about it. And so Prospero gives Maximus this armor. And on this armor, we have a tree. And on either side of the tree, we have, on both sides, we have mirrored. We have these winged griffins. And we have these horses. Uh, one of them is called Argento, and the other, the other one is called Sato. And uh, in our article, we describe what those, what the, the, what those two names actually mean and they have they have um their significance to that the fact that uh maximus's horses were called argento and sato and if you'll forgive us just a minute we can can remind ourselves here oh wait a minute Perhaps we're looking at the wrong article here. Hang on. Okay. So, in any case, you can see that what we have here is a stylized caduceus of Mercury. We have Idan Pingala on either side of the Tree of Life. And we know that this is related to Idan Pingala because we have the feminine and the masculine because we have Maximus's wife and his son, but also that's the divine mother and the innermost Christ. So that's the whole point of the tree of life and the whole, uh... so anyway, that's an aside. We, uh, we won't be able to find the definitions of uh, uh, the, the meaning of his names, but, but if you look up our article, it's, it's Gladiator Unmasked Part Two. And Gladiator Unmasked 2, it's uh, somewhere here. Um, okay, let's see. Okay, here we go. Okay, so Argento is correctly translated as silver, but Scarto is mistranslated as reject. This is because those doing the translation know nothing of the science of alchemy and simply plug in the first Google result translator, whatever. Um, so all nouns in Latin are either masculine or feminine. Given the visual cues in Maximus's armor design, the two horses are equal yet opposite forces. Silver is one of the seven base metals in alchemy and is often associated with the moon, which is profoundly feminine. Sil so Argento is, means silver. Silver is known to possess feminine qualities. 
silver is known to possess feminine qualities and is associated in alchemy with purity. Both the moon and silver reflect the sun's light. They are passive, feminine in nature. Properly translated, scarto is a masculine noun whose meaning as it relates to riding horses, because remember, scarto is the name of a horse, means run out or ride out. So with a little license, we could say a charge out on horseback, as in the charge of the light brigade, the, the charge of the light brigade, or indeed the charge of Maximus's, Maximus leads in the opening scenes in the Battle of Germania. The desperate charge he makes in an attempt to return to Spain to save his family. In any case, this noun is masculine and unquestionably represents a very active force in relation to horses. So Argento and Scato, we have silver related to the moon, related to the feminine, in other words, Ida, and we have this charging horse, the active force. We have Pingala, the masculine force. So that's Ida and Pingala on the tree of life. And whereas in the Caduceus of Mercury, we would see the wings at the top of the spinal column at the top of the tree of life. Well, here on Maximus's armor, they're at the bottom, along with a flourish, right? But still, it's still a uh, profoundly esoteric, and there's no there's no particular reason why his his the horses should have been named that by accident, right? I mean, that's quite the coincidence if that's what the uh, the they called those horses. All right, where are we here? Back to StreamYards. Okay, so let's go on to the next slide here. So here in Gladiator, we have the two emperors. The true emperor, the being, the innermost being, and the false emperor, Commodus, the one who murders Marcus Aurelius and takes over Rome and plunges Rome into darkness. So here we have juxtaposed against one another, right? And even Marcus Aurelius says, Commodus is not a moral man. By the way, the word Commodus literally means desirous. One who is filled with desires. That is what Commodus means. So, and Marcus Aurelius, as one of the founding fathers of Stoicism, was a philosopher. His book, meditations marcus aurelius's meditations is still excellent reading for anybody any initiate any gnostic as well uh there's a lot of good advice in there practical practical advice even you know, that's that's useful to this day oh we have a a chat here okay joel l says atlas we saw the caduceus when it was given to us and it has a five-pointed star between the wings. How come that's not known by anyone or depicted? Do you think it is important to recognize that it has a five-pointed star between the wings? The five-pointed star represents an upright human being. So, using Ida and Pingala, an upright sexuality, 
we become a risen star, an upright human being. An upright pentagram at the top of the caduceus because that's a true human being is what we must become before we can become angelic, be before we can achieve what immortality, ascend into supernal worlds. We must be an upright human being. Now, why they removed that from the caduceus? Considering the caduceus has been essentially appropriated and is currently used by allopathic healthcare, which is decidedly not healthcare, it's symptom management, right? So the, like medic, the, the, the medical industrial complex and the pharmaceutical industrial complex have appropriated the caduceus of mercury. So I'm not surprised at all that they would remove the star from it, the upright pentagram. Now, they can't go so far as to put an inverted pentagram on it because after all, that would maybe raise too many eyebrows. But you're right. It's an interesting omission. And the fact that it's not there means, but also remember also that uh, upright sexuality and white tantra was a secret and was always kept a secret. So it would not have been, uh, it, it, it would not have been uh, openly shared or discussed. But if you're saying that it was shown to you in the astral plane, it was shown to you in meditation or in your travels, and it's there, then it's there. For you, it's there. And we should, and of course, we shouldn't forget that. We should never forget that. But then again, Idan Pingala is already what we work with as single individuals working with our uh, sexual force, or working with our prana, the masculine and feminine channels. Of our, of our prana as we practice pranayama. So it's already related to our Divine Mother. It's all re already related to becoming an upright human being, an upright star, a five-pointed star, an upright pentagram. Yes, the two witnesses. Yes, indeed. Okay, so here we see Marcus Aurelius pleading with Maximus pleading with him, telling him why it must be you. And Maximus says, uh, and when Marcus Aurelius asks him to, to become emperor and hold the throne in trust until the, the Senate is ready to rule again, and, and Maximus is like shocked and like stunned and frozen, and Marcus Aurelius asks him, will you not accept this great honor that I've given you? And Maximus says, with all my heart, no. And then this is the scene, this is the precise moment that Marcus Aurelius grabs him by the, by, by the back of the head, and by the back of the neck and says, Maximus, don't you see? That is why it must be you. Because any man that would turn down the seat of power for the known world surely is worthy of holding it in trust and passing it on and giving it back to Rome's true self, giving it back to the people. 
It's, it's the fact that Maximus turns down all of that power and all of that privilege because he has the army behind him. He could have said to Marcus Aurelius, oh yeah, sure, I'll, 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 I'll do that. Of course, why not? And then march into Rome with his armies and just stay on the throne. And just and not relinquish relinquish power. And Commodus, who's desirous, is very, very, very jealous. Right? And in that scene in which he he murders Marcus Aurelius, it's clear that. It's like he's he only ever wanted to be loved. He wants to be, he wants, Commodus wants everything. He wants everything. He's desirous. He's Commodus. And what he wants most is for his father to love him, for Rome to love him, for the mob to love him. And he wants what's his. He wants what's coming to him. And he's not going to, and, and the last thing he's going to stand for is for somebody else to sit on the throne of Rome in his stead. He's very jealous of Maximus and the relationship between Marcus Aurelius and Maximus. Remember, Marcus Aurelius is the innermost being, the, and Maximus, the human soul, willpower. And the ego, the false self, envies that relationship. Covets everything. The ego wants it all. And the ego envies and will kill what stands in its way, which is Maximus. The willpower. And again, observe yourself. Observe how e your egos target and go after your willpower because they know your willpower is the only thing that's standing between them and getting what they want. That's Maximus. Stands between Commodus and what Commodus wants. So Maximus has to be gotten out of the way in the same way that Marcus Aurelius is silenced. The ego silences Marcus Aurelius. And he's going he's gonna to eliminate Maximus. And thus he's going to take over Rome for himself. Because he wants the mob to love him. He wants everybody to love him. And he wants the love of his sister. He wants his incestuous relationship with, with Lucilla. Who represents the sexual force. The other mentor... that Maximus has, that helps him in the arena to fight and, and win in, in willpower, is Proximo. Now, Proximo, the name Proximo, me, is related to the word proximity, which means close, near, near to. Or, and Maximus has 
a rather close relationship with Proximo, just like he did with Marcus Aurelius. Proximo represents the consciousness. And the reason why Proximo represents the consciousness is because Proximo gives Maximus the armor, number one, but also Proximo instructs Maximus on how to be magnificent. He says to Maximus, well, Maximus goes by the name Spaniard. That's what everybody calls him, right, in the, uh, in the provinces. They just call him the Spaniard. And Proximo says, you're good, Spaniard, but you're not that good. You could be magnificent. And Maximus works out for himself. You, you know, and, and Marcus uh, Proximo describes, oh, you should see the Colosseum, Maximus. 30,000 Romans all watching your every move of your sword, willing for you to make that fateful blow. The silence before and the roar afterwards, it's like, it's like a storm. And Maximus says, you were a gladiator? And Proximus says, yes, I was. And, and it turns out that he won his freedom. In other words, Proximo represents free consciousness. Free consciousness. And he says to Maximus, you know, then, then listen to me. Learn from me. I wasn't the best because I qu killed quickly. I was the best because the crowd loved me. Win the crowd and you will, you will have your freedom. So, in other words, through the consciousness, we receive insights, we receive knowledge. Proximo, like Marcus Aurelius, are the two wise men in Gladiator. And Proximo closest to Maximus. His name means proximity. His, mean, his me, name means close. Because on the tree of life, on the tree of life, the monad, the human soul and the divine soul are adjacent. When we look at the descent on the tree of life of the ray of creation, the ray of Akitanak, it descends in this fashion. And so the connection between our innermost being and our causal body, our, 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 the human soul, is the divine soul, is consciousness. And so consciousness instructs willpower, right? Consciousness is that conscience. So for example, returning briefly to this gluttony business and or any of these vices where your willpower is being challenged, your desire, your inner commodus, desirous through any one of your four bodies of sin, through your mind, your heart, your body, your sexual energy, the, the egos want the sexual energy and they're going to want to screw with you through one of your three brains and five centers. And they're challenging your willpower. What is it 
that lets you know you shouldn't be doing that. Right? We call it conscience. Well, what is conscience? Conscience is free consciousness. It is our proximo, our inner proximo. The one who's guiding us, directing us. Now, the information might be coming from our innermost being. But again, that's Marcus Aurelius is dead in the film. So Proximo is just a, represents another wise man, another man who came before. And he knows from experience. That's the other thing about Proximo. Is that what Proximo teaches Maximus and what Proximo gives Maximus to use, the armor that has the tree of life on it. Maximus gets that from Proximo. And how did Proximo get it? Through experience. The knowledge that Proximo has is self-evident experiential knowledge. It is gnosis. Proximo didn't... He didn't buy that armor at a store for Maximus. And Proximo didn't read in a book how to win the crowd. He learned it the hard way in the arena, in the Colosseum, as a gladiator. This is such a powerful, powerful, meaningful relationship and a powerful, meaningful character. And even though he's on screen very little, and unfortunately, the actor who played Proximo passed away during the filming of Gladiator. So it was very challenging for Ridley Scott uh, to even to have the footage that we have of him. Um, but it's it's miraculous that enough footage survived and it's it's perfect the way it was it was used and it's it it it's so magical in the end that it all came together because you can see how powerful a symbol of the consciousness that Proximo is and and that his experiential knowledge he's passing on to Maximus so that Maximus can be triumphant and win the crowd because Rome is the mob. We learn that. Rome is the mob. And Lucilus tells Maximus, so long as Commodus controls them, he controls everything. And that's why Maximus learns and takes the advice of Proximo, his conscience, to win the crowd. So the crowd, Rome, the being, right, the, the totalitary of ourself, is needs to be won over by willpower you see this is the this is how all the little pieces are fitting together all the allegorical symbol the sim, symbolism is fits together perfectly in gladiator we don't need to go over the ending of the movies in case anyone hasn't seen them uh, you know this is your opportunity to go back and watch them from a different framework from a different perspective not just as entertainment not just as historical drama not just as an academy award-winning uh, film not just as a brilliant score by Hans Zimmer because the music is brilliant 
and not just an Academy Award winning performance by Russell Crowe, but as something more, something deeper. And that brings us to a film which really didn't get its due in the theaters because the, uh, the studio cut it down too much. The Kingdom of Heaven, the version that we recommend is the director's cut. Uh, if you can find it, that's the one that we recommend. It's, it's quite a bit longer. Uh, it has an intermission and it is, it's, it's not as uh, truncated and convoluted as the theatrical release. It's, it's, it's far superior. It has entire storylines in it, which were cut from the theatrical release, which feels too rushed. The film Kingdom of Heaven is the story of Balian. Um, Balian, who is a blacksmith living in France, or is it England? No, it's England. It's England. And it turns out that Balian's real father is a knight in Jerusalem. And that knight played by Liam Neeson and that knight and his entourage return to England and to seek out, Liam Neeson wants to seek out his long lost heir, his bastard son. And he does so. And in the course of events, um, Balian, um, Liam Neeson offers Balian his estate in in Jerusalem, his lands, his castle. And over the course of events of the first act of the film, Balian ends up catching up to Liam Neeson and the rest of the party and, uh, and says, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take you up on your offer. Now, unfortunately, the party gets attacked and Liam Neeson is wounded. And by the time they reach Italy, where, from where they will take a ship to the Holy Land, um, Liam Neeson succumbs to infection um, and and dies. He gets a he gets a fever and dies, but not before knighting his son and giving him giving his son a sword, so passing on his his his, uh, his inheritance. What's interesting is that the character of Balian has a motto. Um, and this is important because in the first act of the film, two things are established. First, Balian has a motto that's carved over the archway of his blacksmith shop. And the motto is, what man is man who does not leave the world better? 
What man is man who does not leave the world better? So from the get-go, this character, this Balian, who serves his lord as the blacksmith, and who mourns his wife, a little detail that perhaps we should have mentioned, he's living in melancholy, he's living in depression. But he has this motto that, that he's here to make the world a better place. When his father knights him, he is made to take an oath, an oath of knighthood. That oath is be brave that God may help thee. Speak the truth, even if it leads to death. Safeguard the helpless. And Liam Neeson says, that is your oath, and then smacks him across the face and says, that, and that is so you remember it. That's the severity and mercy of love. That's the, how we get treated sometimes by our innermost being. We're reminded of our motto and our, of our oath. Be brave that God may help thee, because God helps those who help themselves. God can't help you if you're a coward. God can't help you if you're succumbing to fear. Yes, Eduardo, uh, he is made to become the Baron of Ibelin. That's uh, Liam Neeson's, and, and that's what the Ibelin is the name of the estate, the name of the lands, the estate that uh, Balian um, inherits from Liam Neeson. So he becomes the new Baron of Ibelin. And speak the truth, even if it leads to your death. Honesty is, it's, it's never a question of convenience. You don't have to always, you don't have to always volunteer the truth. Wisdom should guide us when to speak the truth. How much of the truth to reveal and when to reveal it and to whom we should reveal the truth. But that doesn't mean that gives us license to, to lie. So if information is on a need-to-know basis, and it's right in the Bible as well, it says, do not cast pearls before swine, it doesn't mean that we have to go around trumpeting, right, everything to everybody all the time, because we know, we know that... What's that film? A Few Good Men, right? Another courtroom drama with Jack Nicholson on the stand and that famous scene and that famous line from that movie is, you can't handle the truth. How many times have we encountered that in our life? Where we've spoken truth to somebody and clearly they could not handle hearing the truth. They weren't prepared for the truth. They're not at the level to be able to grasp the truth that we perhaps shouldn't have told them. 
most of the world is not ready to know most of the truth. So speak the truth even if it leads to your death. Okay, but use discernment, use willpower, or use wisdom. Let the source of truth, the innermost, guide you as to when and to whom and how and where that truth is relayed and how much of the truth. At the same time, we want to be cognizant that if we make that decision of what to say and what not to say and how much to share and what not to share, it is very likely that we will, we will make some mistakes. What's more is that those mistakes can have dire consequences, right? We are not qualified to make that decision. Just as the truth comes through us, not from us, but through us, so to the wisdom of when, to whom, where, and how much, or how little, these decisions should be in the hands of the source of truth. And the reason we say that is because many of the lies Many of the ways in which the Black Lodge manipulate humanity is through selective truths, or specifically, selective omissions of the truth. This is most common in the New Age, where these New Age gurus, so-called, cherry-pick bits and pieces of the of the of the picture you know they get a little bit here they get a little bit there they, get a little, they whatever they like it's like it's like to them to them spirituality is an all-you-can-eat buffet and their job is to stack their plate with what they like and what they know other people will like have you ever gone to a buffet and somebody says to you, here, let me choose because they know the buffet. They've, they've been here before. I know what's good here. Have you ever had that experience? Where someone, someone goes and someone goes to the buffet and fills up your plate for you? That's, those are new age gurus, right? And then later, maybe you get up and go to the buffet and you realize, oh my God, they had... They had roast beef, they had salad, they had all these other things, they had sushi, they had all these other things. And that person didn't put any of those, those really good stuff, nutritious stuff or important stuff or things that you really needed or really wanted. They didn't put that on your plate. They only gave you the stuff that they wanted or that they thought you should eat. It's a sketchy analogy, to be sure, but it's one, perhaps, that we can relate with. Of course, there's no real uh, 
danger in going to a buffet and not getting any roast beef or not getting any sushi, right? There's no, there's no danger to life and limb. But in, in another example, imagine someone is instructing you on how to drive a car. And they're giving you instruction on how to merge safely onto the highway. And they neglect to teach you about the shoulder check. About looking over your shoulder to make sure there's no one in your blind spot. Now, we're talking about a very different scenario. So, if we are not if we are giving instruction to someone and we leave out such a critical step, then we can be putting them at risk. So it's important to remember that. It's important for us to know our place when it comes to speaking the truth. The last part of Balian's oath here is safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. That's That was left out of the quote. Safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. That is your oath. Smack across the face and that is so you remember it. Okay. Safeguard the helpless and do no wrong. Pretty straightforward. Pretty straightforward. We're going to take a pause here just long enough. Oh, so there's, by the way, Obviously, this is the Baron of Ibelin. This is um, uh, Liam Neeson's character. This is in the woods where they get they get confronted by the men of the, the Lord who Balian works for. And we won't get into the details of why there was the confrontation and, and whatnot. Suffice it to say, uh, Balian murders his his brother a priest uh not that he didn't have good reason sure he had good reason because his uh his brother was was being a colossal douchebag and was wearing a cross that he stole from around the neck of his dead wife balian's wife had a gold cross around her neck when she was buried and and Balian's own brother stole that cross from around her neck and also told the gravedigger to cut off her head because she was a suicide and and he's teasing incessantly teasing and poking Balian with that knowledge until eventually Balian just loses it and uh, and murders him so Balian has to leave and he catches up with Liam Neeson's party but then the Lord uh, sends men after them to to take Balian in and to have justice served and and, and Balian because he killed the priest. Okay, this is pretty much takes us to the end of Act One uh, because Balian eventually will end up in in uh, in the Middle East. But before we go there, Dylan says I've been struggling with that. How much of oneself they can be in company 
that isn't ready for that level of a conversation. The line between helping others or to become reserved have become very selective where I share my energy now. They take, they take, take, take when you give, give, and give. It doesn't make sense to keep lighting a fire for them to put out for selfish narcissists. The expression, do not cast pearls before swine, comes to mind, does it not? What is it about swine? They, they root around and they eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and they wallow. And they, they're not altogether pleasant. And their consumption is insatiable, their appetite. That's why they're swine. So if you cast pearls before swine, number one, they don't know that they're pearls. They'll probably eat them. And like you say, you give, 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 and they take, take, take. And do they appreciate what you are giving? Or are they just blindly consuming it? Or is it in one ear and out the other? But they like the attention. The attention that you're lavishing on them because you're, you're spending your precious time and energy on them. There are many people who, in the studies, and they'll call themselves Gnostics. They'll call themselves initiates. They'll call themselves students of esotericism and occultism. And we've mentioned this before. They, they accumulate. They're hoarders. They, they are constantly seeking information and and they just want to to gather and gather and gather to them into themselves and they stuff their mind with as much esoteric knowledge as they can and they'll get it from wherever they can find it and if they sense that you have something valuable to give they will take it from you they will want it they will want you to give it to them because it's something else they're going to stuff in there We've met so many people online uh, who are walking encyclopedias of everything from gematria to, to uh, sacred geometry to the tarot to the, that, that speak other languages, that know the Hebrew alphabet and other alphabets and Sanskrit, and, and they know the Bible uh, front to back, and they, they can rhyme off uh, the, the Bhagavad Gita from the top of their head. And they know all of these mantras in Sanskrit, and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And they've read all of Master Samael's books, and they've got all of this stuff. They just stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff. They are intellectual, esoteric gluttons. Their mystic pride is wholly informed by their fear 
by their insecurity. They are creating for themselves like hoarders, people who hoard things. That's like, the, that's the nesting instinct. Those are like squirrels who are hoarding nuts for the winter. And we have a little squirrel that comes to our deck every day. We give them peanuts. We give him peanuts. He takes them every single day, takes them away. His, wherever he lives, he can't even, he, he probably doesn't even have any room in his den anymore. There are so many peanuts in there. So now we, I know for a fact, he must be burying them elsewhere now. It doesn't matter. He will come and take the peanuts and he'll take them away. He's hoarding peanuts. It is a primal, instinctive animal trait. And it's a survival instinct. And the survival instinct is fear. The self-preservation instinct levers on the ego of fear. And hoarders create that, that armor because they identify with their space and their self, and they, but they feel unsafe. They feel insecure. So what do they do? They collect things. They hoard things. People who collect uh, toys and comic books, they identify with those things. That is who they are. They are a lover of comics or they are a lover of toys. And you see them on the internet, these, uh, these, these, the members of the 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 so-called uh, nerdum or whatever you want to call it, and these men and women and their 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 man caves, and I guess their woman caves, their their fan caves, I suppose is what we could call them, and they're surrounded. They set their they set their uh, live streaming up so that you, the audience, you, the viewer, can see their collection behind them. They have all their toys on display, or they have their their, their, their statues and their comic books and all the things that they love, all the things that they've surrounded themselves, all the things that make them feel like an uber nerd, like an expert on what they're talking about. They surround themselves. And uh, intellectual esoteric gluttons, intellectual esoteric hoarders, fill their bookshelves with esoteric books and fill their head with with esoteric book knowledge but that's not what gnosis is and so many people that you meet you can get a sense from them if they're that type of person that they just want to use you and use whatever it is you give them to add to their collection. Joel says, unless Sadhguru is cooking, and he put a happy smiley face, laughing face, so he's making a joke there. And Dylan says, communication is useless without understanding. We would say that um, sharing knowledge with others it's, you're not really, you're, you're sharing experience, you're sharing knowledge, you're sharing insight, but what you, what they really need from us is guidance, is, is a, 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 a sign pointing them in the right direction so they can go and experience for themselves and gain 
the knowledge for themselves through themselves, through their higher self, through their own direct conscious experience. That's what people need the most. And they need guidance and when they are mistaken, when they have erroneous interpretations, where their own ego mind has gotten in the way of their, of their experience and they have misinterpreted their experiences and they, they have, their ego mind has formed a set of erroneous beliefs around experiences. And it is difficult, it is very, very, very difficult to help individuals in that situation because of course experiences are powerful and we are told right we told do we not always talk about self-evident experiential knowledge gnosis is experiential knowledge so it becomes we sound almost hypocritical when we say to someone yeah you've had that experience but that doesn't mean what you think it means it sounds hypocritical, but you say, but how do you, how dare you say that? I'm the one who had the experience. I know what I went through. I had the experience. It's my experience. How dare you tell me about my experience? And yet, they have a shamadi and think they're enlightened. Right? They've taken mushrooms and believe they're now, they're, they believe they've ascended into such and such a higher plane. They had an experience on mushrooms and now they believe they know the nature of the universe, the nature of reality. They're mistaken. But their experience is so powerful. Well, of course. And, and we say it's experiential knowledge. Right? The doctrine of the heart. The doctrine of gnosis. Self-evident experiential knowledge. That which we seek on the path. We're constantly hammering it home. So let's see if we can't dig deeper into that by uh, looking at um, right. So that's a that's a repeat of uh, Balian's oath. Okay. So this is Balian with the hospila hospilator hospilator, which is basically a warrior monk. Um, the closest, the closest that in in medieval Europe uh, we would have to, let's say, like a samurai in Japan, who's also a warrior monk. Um, the hospitaller is a uh, he's part of a uh, a military regiment. He's part of an order of what you might call clerics or paladins, holy warriors, and obviously. At this time in history, the Middle East was filled with orders of holy warriors. The influence of the church over Europe was very, very profound during the, uh, the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. And, of course, here we're looking at the Crusades. And, but the Hospilator, that's on the historical level and the, the level of the film. From an esoteric level, the hospitaler is a he is a magical type of a character. 
And several times in the film, he, he seems to appear out of nowhere. In fact, some fans have theorized, there are fan theories that suggest that the hospitality doesn't even exist, that he's, that, that he's in a hallucination of Balian. And that he's 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 a he's a, a ghost or a phantom or a spirit, or just an hallucination that that Balian has, because he's kind of ethereal and he, again, he appears out of nowhere. And then there are there are moments in the film, and we'll get to one that that Balian is injured and he's unconscious, and the hospitaler, who's a, also a physician, that's one of his arts it's one of his crafts or one of his abilities in the um in the story uh he just leans down out of nowhere and just touches balian on the temple and then he disappears and then balian comes too he 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 comes awake he comes alive so the implication here and the hospitaler also uh divulges wisdom to balian so he has this uh he has this rather well i don't know how famous his speech he says i put no stock in religion by the word religion, I have seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. I have seen too much religion in the eyes of too many murderers. Holiness is right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves. And goodness, what God desires, is in the mind. He says it's in here and here, in the mind and in the heart. And what you, desire, what you decide to do every day will make you a good man or not. It's these types of, it's this type of wisdom and the other factual matter-of-fact things and matter-of-fact ways that the hospitaler uh, played by Carrie, uh, um, I can't remember the actor's name. Forgive, forgive me. I wanted to say Carrie Ewells, but that's not it. That's not that's not the actor's name. Um, he delivers these very important bits of 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 teaching throughout the course of the film, and he states very matter of factly. For example, when Liam Neeson gets shot by the arrow. It is the hospitaler who removes the arrow from Liam Neeson's side. And he says, well, you, you're the one who broke the arrow. And he said, well, and, and Liam Neeson basically asks him, am I going to make it? He says, well, if, uh, if the marrow has entered the blood, You'll take on a fever and you'll die. Or a cyst will form and you'll live. 
He's the one that, and again, it's one of these to be or not to be. It either will be or it won't be. Here again, in this speech, in this speech, in this uh, little um, uh, excerpt, we have the Hospitaller say to Balian, and what you decide to do will make you a good man or not. And uh, it seems to me, here is a, uh, this, this scene out in the desert, this is Balian out in the desert. And Balian throws a, a rock and it sparks a bush to light on fire. This is another one of those scenes where the hospitaler just seems to appear out of nowhere and has this kind of conversation explaining what Balian is experiencing in the moment. Right? The, the, the bush starts to catch on fire and Balian says, I did not hear it speak, alluding to Moses and the burning bush. And at one point, Balian uh, tells to, says to the hospitaller, I have been to the rock. I've been to the dome. I've been to where Jesus was crucified. I've been to all the holy places in Jerusalem. And God does not speak to me. I am out of God's favor. I have fallen out of God's favor. And the hospi hospitaller responds to that by saying, I have not heard that. And it's in that moment that the hospitaler's role as conscience, if you will, as or as Mercury, the messenger of the gods. The hospitaler is this is is a is a go-between. He's a messenger. He arrives, he does something, he appears out of nowhere. He's like Balian's conscience, in a sense. And Balian's down, Balian's deciding this and that and the other thing about this, that, and the other thing. And the hospitaler is the one who says, no, you know what? I haven't heard that. As if he has the power of Mercury, who is the messenger of the gods. And we all have our own individual Mercury. There is a metaphysical aspect, which is what delivers the still, still soft voice. Via our consciousness. Right? The still soft voice of the chirping cricket of Pinocchio. Geppetto. Or no, sorry, not Geppetto. The 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 the, the cricket in uh Pinocchio. That's that's Pinocchio's conscience, the cricket. So the Mercury is related to the consciousness, the messenger of the gods. The mess the consciousness, again, remember, like Proximo, the go-between, uh the, the Proximo who instructs. Maximus, the Hospitaller, instructs Balian, and Balian's father, who of course, dies. But then there's another character that comes in and assumes the role. Um, Again, we have that quote, I put no stock in religion. By the word religion, I have seen the lunacy of fanatics of every denomination be called the will of God. Holiness is in right action and courage on behalf of those who cannot defend themselves and goodness. What God desires is here, points to the head, and here, points to the heart. 
And by what you decide to do every day, you will be a good man or not. To be or not to be. That is the question. This is Tiberius. Tiberius is the uh, sheriff of Jerusalem, for lack of a better expression. He, he's the lawman. He is responsible for that the laws are upheld and that the will of the king is followed. And that's played by Jeremy Irons. Um, Kingdom of Heaven. We have never mapped the characters onto the Tree of Life in Kingdom of Heaven, mostly because the it's, it's not quite as clean as in Gladiator. It's a little bit more muddied and muddled because it's a little bit more complicated because Liam Neeson has to die so Balian can become the new uh, Baron of Ebelin, right? So, and also it is, it is also questionable as to the course of events, whether or not Balian actually does the right thing. That's up for debate. If, especially if, you consider the next character as an analog of Balian's innermost being. This is King Balian. King Balian is a leper. Okay, He's king of Jerusalem, but he's a leper. So he's covered head to toe in silk uh, garments all the time, and he wears this mask. And it's a brilliant performance. Um, and... Uh, uh, the actor's name is on the tip of my tongue, but now it's gone. And King Balian also, during a game of chess, Balian says the whole world is in chess. The whole world is in chess. Any move can be the death of you. Do anything except remain where you started, and you can't be sure of your end. Remember, remember that howsoever you are played or by whom, your soul is in your keeping alone. Even though those who presume to play you be kings or men of power, when you stand before God, you cannot say, but I was told by others to do thus, or that virtue was not convenient at the time. This will not suffice. Thank you. Thank you, Ed, uh, Eduardo. It was Edward Norton who plays King Balian, King Balian IV. And it's a very subtle... The I mean, he's in, a, he's in an iron mask, for heaven's sake. And yet, somehow, his voice and just the way in which he carries himself is so convincing and so endearing. But this, you know, recently we made, we, we made a meme and, uh, that, that utilized the... Uh, the chessboard. 
and chess as we've often said i mean there's not, it's not by accident that the floor of every masonic lodge is checkerboard and the symbolic power and the allegorical power of of chess is profound the whole as 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 king balian says the whole world is in chess and there's a chess game going on inside of us and if we comprehend that we comprehend this speech about though uh remember that whosoever you are played that howsoever you are played or by whom your soul is in your keeping alone even though those who presume to play you be kings or men of power Howsoever we are played, or by whom, or by what, i.e., our egos, our soul is in our keeping. It will not be so will not suffice to stand before the lords of karma and say, but virtue wasn't convenient. I was being coerced. I was being forced. I was being threatened. So? So that suddenly makes it okay? So, you know, I, uh, I was being coerced to become part of the organization that put people onto cattle cars and sent them away to death camps. Do you think that matters? Do you think it matters that you were being coerced? Do you think it matters that, but that's what everybody was doing it. I was just, I was just going along with what everybody else was doing. That's not how karma works. Karma isn't based on popularity. Karma isn't based on your comfort and security. Karma isn't based on convenience and making decisions of convenience or virtue by convenience. And this is all embodied in this speech. And it will come into play later in the film. That's why this, this particular encounter and this particular exchange between Bailey and the king is so important. Now we come to the all-important character of Sibylla. Because the feminine character in every, every drama, every uh, heroic journey always plays a critical role and just like in many fairy tales uh sibylla is trapped she is enslaved and she is enslaved of course by her husband guy de lusignan and in the course of events eventually uh he will take power and he will take control of the army and uh, and and uh, become the new king of Jerusalem because he's next in line to the throne because Sibylla is King Baldwin's sister. 
So when the king dies, Sibylla becomes queen of Jerusalem, and her husband, Guy de Lusignan, therefore becomes king. But Guy de Lusignan is a Templar, and he is a, <laughs> a real douchebag. <laughs> he's a real, he's, he's, he's just a bonhomme. He's just a, 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 a he's, like, he's like Commodus, right? He's like the ego. He's like, he wants Jerusalem for himself. He wants power. And he wants war. You see, King Baldwin has negotiated a peace with Salahuddin and the Muslims. And Guy de Lusignan, as a Templar, uh, is according to according to Tiberius, he calls the Templars fanatics. They want to wipe out all. They want to wipe out Islam. They want to wipe out all the Saracens. They're not called Muslims at this time. They're called Saracens. And that's what Guy de Lucien wants. And he has an accomplice. This is Renaud de Chatignon. And Renaud de Chatignon is also a Templar. And he's a bloodthirsty Templar. He, he loves going on raids. And they're bloody raids. They raid caravans, women and children, indiscriminate, so long as they're Saracen. And uh, these Templars are, again, Tiberius calls them uh, Templar fanatics. They're bloodthirsty killers. And uh, that's that's just a little animation, animated GIF of the scene where um, the two of them, Guy de Lusignan and Renal de Chatignon, uh, go on a raid together. And it's an unarmed caravan. And they're breaking the law. They're breaking the king's will. So here again, we see an expression of ego, the false self, the one who takes power, one who takes control of the kingdom through the king's sister. Right? When, if the king dies, King Baldwin dies, Guy de Lucien takes power through her. Otherwise, he has no claim to the throne. But he claims the throne through his sister. And that's the, uh, the, the false self. Again, who... claims, lays claim to the kingdom, our kingdom, lays claim to the throne through appropriation and domination of the divine feminine, the sexual force. That is how our false self takes control. 
And not only that, once he becomes king, he is then able to unleash Renaud de Chatignon against the Saracens and against Salahuddin. And Renaud de Chatignon murders Salahuddin's, Salahuddin's sister and brings the wrath of the, the entire Saracen army, the whole of Salahuddin's army, is brought to bear on, on the kingdom of Jerusalem. We'll get to that in a minute. There is a subplot. There is a subplot in the director's cut where the Queen of Jerusalem has a son. And in that subplot, he too is leprous like his uncle. And we're just going to skip over that for now. We may come back to it later. Let's, let's go to the, uh, the, the actual Battle of Jerusalem. Because Balian is the defender of Jerusalem. He is the one who defends. But he makes it clear, and he makes it clear to everybody that what he is fighting for is within those walls. He says, we fight for the people. We fight for the citizens. We fight for the occupants of Jerusalem. Not these walls and buildings themselves. That's worthwhile taking a moment to meditate on because here we have this, this whole army that still wants to take Jerusalem. And this was all, this wrath was all brought down upon us by Guy de Lusignan and his blood, his bloodlust, his desire for war. And Salahuddin wipes out Guy de Lusignan's army out on the open field. And Guy de Lusignan is put on the back of a donkey with a dunce cap on his head. And he's paraded around in front of the army of the Saracens. And he says to Guy de Lusignan, he says, a king, does not ki a king does not kill a king. Why were you not close to a great king to learn from his example? The false self, the ego, screws everything up. And he brings down, he only, the, the false self will only bring the wrath of another false king who wants to come and take, take control of Jerusalem. And all of these egos were being kept at bay because, because King Baldwin kept the peace. But the false self doesn't want peace. The false self wants war. And the war that the false self wages is such that the, 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 the body, the mind, the emotions, in other words, the walls, the substance, the four bodies of sin become overrun with the enemy. That's, it's, that we bring that upon ourselves. We bring that on, upon our own kingdom. And we can look at, for example, 
the Saracen invasion of Jerusalem. We can look at it as anything from illness to cancer to any number of negative bad effects that are, that are the result of us acting on ill will or acting through the false self, acting with the bloodlust, the bloodthirsty desire, the desire for conflict that Guy de Lucien and Renaud de Chatignon, those two characters represent. The ill will and the false self, the bloodlust, the desire for war. They, they want to stir the shit. They want to stir the trouble. They want to break the peace. And if we don't have peace, we have stress, we have anxiety, we have depression, we have all these other things, and we have illness. And we have things like cancer. All of that can be, can be brought down on us, can attack us, can invade us, that want to take over our body and take over our soul. The souls within these walls. That is what Balian is defending. And he eventually negotiates with Salahuddin the safe passage of every soul to, to the sea. And Balian surrenders Jerusalem to Salahuddin. But every soul gets safe passage to the sea. Our physical body, our our mind, our emotions, the four bodies of sin, they can be overrun. We can, we can die. Circumstances, life, the adversary, our, our, our false self, our egos, our, our ill will, our bad decisions, our poking the bear, our causing unnecessary conflict, bringing, bringing down upon ourselves the wrath of nature. comes crashing in on us illness again illness cancer whatever all the all you know stress anxiety all these things that 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 affect us balian willpower the hero defends jerusalem but it's not the walls that he's more concerned about it's the souls inside so our gluttony, our fear, our anxiety. Remember all those uh, vices and vices that we were talking about? Overeating or drinking or whatever, you know, vices that we have. We can, we can see, we can visualize all of those as the Saracen army coming to take over our faculties take over our Jerusalem, take over our body, these walls, this, this temple. They, the, they want their temples back, right? And then we can think of it as ego, right? Because it's just, it's another king, right? And someone else, it's someone who wants to, 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 to lord over our lands. And, and as we observe ourselves, and as we observe our illnesses, and as we observe our, our, our vices and all these things, and as we observe our gluttony, and we, we, might, we might say, oh, well, I have to defend my body against that gluttony, 
and all the pounds that I put on over Christmas. So I'm going to work like mad. I'm going to focus on, you know, uh, uh, losing all this weight and getting in shape for, for, for uh, summer. Look at all those people who are completely obsessed with how they look. We know someone we went to university with who now competes in body sculpting competitions for women. Body sculpting. Not, not beauty contests, not uh, weightlifting, not any athletic, body sculpting. And this is an example of someone whose willpower, because it takes a lot of willpower to become a body sculpting competitor. No question, it takes a lot of willpower. But in that case, is Balian fighting for the souls of Jerusalem or is he fighting for the walls? It's a good question. It's a question that everybody has to, has to ask and answer for themselves. It doesn't mean that we should let ourselves go, right? It doesn't mean that we, 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 we can all be, you know, whatever, however slovenly and how many, however hundreds of pounds or, you know, whatever the case may be. It's not that either. But Balian does fight. Balian does, you know, run around on the ramparts, right? He does defend Jerusalem. But he defends it long enough so that he gets terms. So they ask for terms. The terms that they ask that, that is that he's fighting for the soul of Jerusalem, the souls of Jerusalem. In the end, Salahuddin asks for terms or and offers terms and Balian accepts them. And at the end of the confrontation, Balian asks Salahuddin, what is Jerusalem worth? And Salahuddin says, Nothing. And then he says, everything. This is really how we can recognize and comprehend the forces of mechanical nature. the ego works for mechanical nature the ego and mechanical nature the ego works for mechanical nature the city of Jerusalem is going to go back to the Saracens Salah Hedin and his army are going to take Jerusalem back because it belongs to them. The Christians took it from the Muslims in a bloody slaughter how many hundreds of years before. And it's the Hospitaller who says to Balian, the Muslims will never forget. The Muslims will never forget that slaughter. They will never stop. 
So the Christians, the Christ, the representatives of Christ, the soul, takes the body away from mechanical nature. But mechanical nature never forgets. The mechan mechanical nature wants its body back. And it wants its sexual energy. And it wants its mental energy. And yet, for mechanical nature, what is it worth? Nothing. Everything. Do you look at the way, the frivolous way that the ego is, and the ego treats things? It abuses, right? The ego is abusive. It, 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 it what did we say before? It devalues it uh, in, uh, in the last duel. What was the expression that we used? It defouls. Right? Because that's its nature. It's the nature of mechanical nature, right? It recycles things. It breaks things down. It takes things ashes to ashes, dust to dust. It's really not worth anything. And yet, it's worth everything. Because to mechanical nature, that's all there is. That's all there is at that level of being. The kingdom of heaven. Right? And Balian says, if this is the kingdom of heaven, let God do with it as he wills. That's Balian's contribution to the philosophical debate, the question of what is Jerusalem worth. But it's this is the worldly, the, the Jerusalem, the kingdom of heaven on earth, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom is Malkuth on the tree of life. Three-dimensional reality. That's the kingdom. It becomes the kingdom of heaven when it embodies the soul, when it embodies the Christ. The Christians, when the Christians occupy the kingdom of heaven, it's the kingdom of heaven. To a Christian, the Saracens are heathens. They are mechanical, they are heathens, they are like savages, they are like animals. But they want their city back. It belongs to them because the Christians took it from them 150 years ago or whatever, you know, 150 years earlier. This is a powerful, powerful, powerful allegory and a powerful messaging and a powerful teaching. What really matters? Does it really matter if you have a washboard, washboard abs? Does it really matter? that you have a full head of hair that you've done, or that you've done laser eye surgery so you don't have to wear glasses does it really matter that you have 24 inch pythons or not look at all of the energy and all of the effort that people do and people make to perfect their jerusalem to strengthen their walls to fortify their ramparts. And yet Balian shows us in the defense of Jerusalem, in the kingdom of heaven, he is shows the wisdom of fighting for the souls inside. 
and negotiating with mechanical nature, making a deal with the Saracens, the so-called heathens, you can have your city back. Let our Christian souls go. In other words, Balian negotiates a peace with Salahuddin, just like King Baldwin did before, but that Guy de Lusignan couldn't do. Because Guy de Lusignan wanted war and wanted to bring the wrath of mechanical nature back upon himself. So there's another way you can, you can observe this, and that is Guy de Lusignan in his bloodlust is like the ego that creates uh, the 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 ego that creates the conditions for premature aging and deterioration of the physical body and the mind by abuse of the physical body and abuse of the emotional center. In other words, the abuse of power. Guy de Lusignan takes the throne and he abuses his power, and and his power only comes through his wife. That's the divine mother. That's the sexual force. So Guy de Lusignan uh, becomes king of Jerusalem and gains all that power through his wife, the, the, the divine feminine, but then he abuses that power and he brings down the wrath of mechanical nature on Jerusalem. And he brings down that wrath on himself and he wipes out the army of Jerusalem because... This is like someone who abuses the sexual force or someone who abuses their, their mental center. So things like Alzheimer's disease, things like Alzheimer's disease, and, and there are many diseases, degenerative diseases, become more advanced more quickly if we're constantly abusing that center. If someone's constantly can't settle down the mind, can't quiet the mind, and is constantly pushing all this energy through their mental center all the time, they can end up with, uh, th with uh, those kinds of problems. And then there are all kinds of other physiological uh, phenomenon which, which are psychosomatic in nature and related to anxiety and stress and depression. And we have lots of different physiological expressions of that. We bring the wrath of mechanical nature to bear down on us. But what matters and what's important is that we liberate the Christ inside of us. We, we free our souls from, this, from being besieged by the elements of mechanical nature that are triggered by our lust and our bloodlust. Well, Guy de Lusignan's bloodlust, but for us it's lust. It's 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 lust acting through all of the different egos and all the different centers. Finally, Balian does defeat Guy de Lusignan in a duel, and he and Sibylla return to France, or sorry, return to England, where they are eventually greeted by Richard the Lionheart, who is crusading to retake. Jerusalem. And in the epilogue of the film, we learn that Balian and Sibylla 
uh, returned and uh, and crusaded with King Richard the Lionheart for I don't know how many years, and then eventually uh, there was an uneasy peace brokered with Salahuddin. That's the the epilogue of the of the movie. We don't get to see any of that. This is the final scene of the movie with uh, King Richard showing up at Balian's doorstep, saying that he's that they are looking. We came by this road searching for Balian, who was defender of Jerusalem. That's Kingdom of Heaven. That's Kingdom of Heaven, Gladiator, and The Last Duel. <laughs> Eduardo made a comment here, which is a play on one of the lines from the movie. Uh, when, when they're besieged inside the walls of Jerusalem by the army of Salahuddin, and one of the characters says, they, they will ask for terms. They must ask for terms. The archbishop says, convert to Islam, repent later. <laughs> and truly, truly, it's the voice of fear. It's the voice of anxiety. <laughs> and, um, and, and it's one of these things where, where you're reminded of, uh, of King Baldwin's advice to Balian about speaking the truth, even if it's not convenient, even if it leads to your death. And then you have the archbishop say, no, no, convert to Islam and then repent later. <laughs> It's, uh, and uh, Eduardo suggesting that that's the voice of anxiety, and we can't, we can't, uh, we can't argue with you there, my friend. <laughs> um, Ridley Scott is eighty-three years old. It's possible that the last duel is his last film. I mean, let's be real, eighty-three years old. If any of you have ever been on a movie set, a film set, or a television set the hours are grueling uh sh shooting starts at sun up and very often uh uh the director has already been working before the sun rose looking at dailies from the previous day and preparing his shot list for for the day or the next day or or an hour sorry at the end of the day when, when, when shooting wraps, the director's not done. The director is preparing his shot lists for the next day. And then the next morning, he's looking at dailies from the previous day and making sure that he has everything he needs because he might have to, re he might have to redo some takes. He might do, have to do some reshoots that day. So in other words, we're talking about a grueling, grueling schedule for weeks and, and, and very likely months at a time. It's, it's, it is not for the faint of heart at any age, let alone someone at 83 years old. So realistically, realistically, The Last Duel might be Ridley Scott's last film. But as, as our good friend Eduardo pointed out, at least we were alive. To, we were alive. We, we, we were alive while Ridley Scott was alive. And we were alive to see his films in the theaters and uh, to experience his uh, his, his masterpieces and his esoteric masterpieces. And even though, and even though not all of his movies are blockbusters, the last duel and kingdom of heaven were not blockbusters in the movie theaters. Time is very kind to Ridley Scott's films, just like Blade Runner. Blade Runner was a box office flop back in the eighties, but time was very kind to Blade Runner. The genius of Blade Runner 
uh, grew, only grew over the years. And we feel that if we can do our part, we can help expand the appreciation for Ridley Scott's period pieces, specifically the three films, which we discussed uh, and shared with you tonight. Um, and we invite anybody to ask questions or, or, or offer your own comments or insights. Otherwise, um, we're getting close to the two and a half hour mark. So uh, we've shared most of what uh, we had to say. Um, so if you have anything you'd like to add, feel free to do so. Um, even if you want to share which one of these movies you've liked or you've seen or you haven't seen, or which ones you don't like, <laughs> or what you like about them, what you don't like about them, maybe there's something else you see in them that we missed. Um, or maybe there's another one of Ridley Scott's films that, uh, or another period piece, because we could have mentioned Robin Hood, for instance. The problem with Robin Hood or um, uh, what Exodus, Gods and Kings, because it might surprise people that we didn't mention that film or that we're not interested in speaking about that film. And the reason why we're not interested in speaking about that film is that Ridley Scott had this, when it came to Robin Hood and Exodus, Gods and Kings, which is the film he made about Moses and the book of Exodus from the Bible, Ridley Scott went through this phase where he he wanted to find the real historical version the the he wanted to tell the story of the historical scientific version of exodus and he wanted to he wanted to tell the a plausible historical version of robin hood and in his mind it was it would have been impossible for Robin Hood, this master of the bow, to have been a nobleman because uh, knights, knights did not learn archery. And archery was a trade, archery was a skill that uh, only the yeoman class learned. And knights looked down upon uh, uh, archers. Archers were in battle, they were like, they were cannon fodder. They were like, they were a lower class and that then the class system was very regimented and it was very uh, structured in uh, medieval Europe or well, was it medieval Europe or dark age? No, it was medieval Europe because it was the time of the crusades. It's a similar time of, uh, of, of kingdom of heaven. So um, knights were trained in hand-to-hand -hand combat, armored combat, and uh, combat on heavy horse. They would have learned. Um, they would have learned uh, uh, jousting, and so in other words, combat on heavy horse, combat in armor, because armor is expensive, very expensive, and and actually chainmail is the most expensive type of armor because it's the most labor intensive to make. So uh, the knights, the noblemen were trained in heavy armor and heavy weapons and hand-to-hand -hand combat and heavy horse. Because that's because horses are expensive. And shotting horses is expensive, but also keeping horses 
feeding horses and then arming horses, covering horses in armor. This is not, you know, so, but a bow and arrow is cheap. Arrows aren't cheap. And you actually had a coal class called Fletcher's whose job were making arrows, specifically putting the flights on arrows. That's what a Fletcher was. Um, so the yeoman class was a lower class. And so that's why Ridley Scott told the tale he did where, well, what if, what if we could tell a tale where a nobleman dies at the side of the road and Robin Loxley is there and, and he and the nobleman uh, tells, begs Robin Loxley to take his sword and to his home, to his father, to let him know that he, that he died and everything else. And then we have the story unfold as it did. So, uh, um, Robin, um, Longstride takes on the name of Sir Robin of Loxley and that that's how the legend is born. And we always felt that the title of the movie was wrong. He should have called the movie Robin Hood, A Legend is Born, because that would have helped the audience. That would have better framed it for the audience that, hey, we're not telling you the, the Arrow Flynn version of Robin Hood or the, or the Kevin Costner version of Robin Hood. We're, we're, we're telling you this, this historical, historically plausible version of Hollywood, or sorry, of Robin Hood. Um, Dylan says not sure if it's relevant or not but i rather enjoyed the movie stargate you know um we never saw that film so uh you'll have to you'll have to illuminate us as to why you think it's important or why you liked it so much you'll have to let us know because we've never watched it and we know there was also a tv series wasn't there was a Stargate TV series. We never watched that either. The one that comes to mind that we did see was called uh, Contact uh, with Jodie Foster. Eduardo says uh, Stargate is about Egyptians in space seeding worlds for slaves. Okay. Again, we haven't seen it, so we can't comment. But if that's the plot, fair enough. Yeah, now that you mention it, though, we do seem to remember there were there were there were Egyptian there was there was Egyptian imagery in the film. Although we never seen the film, but we remember from the trailers and whatnot and the uh, the posters and such. So, um, does anybody have any other comments or questions or have anything else to share or? Uh, because if not, uh, we just as well, just as happily call it a night. If uh, if no one else has anything else they'd like to uh, bring to the table. If there's another movie you want to talk about, sure, feel free. <laughs> um, I don't know if Dylan wants to share thoughts about why he liked Stargate. But, uh, but this is your chance to do so. Um, you can even pop on. If you have the link, you can go to the top of the... We can share it again, actually. Here. 
there's the link again if uh if anybody uh wants to pop on another reminder that we do go into uh much more detail um on our blog, we have these two articles that we wrote on Gladiator specifically. And truth be told, we could probably write a third because we didn't get through the whole film. Um, this is the article. This is the, the the cover. We just took this this beautiful fan art that someone made. Um, we should try to. Um, See if we can, yeah, okay, we can um, shrink it down a bit. This beautiful fan art that someone made. And uh, we decided to, to use this image. Dylan says, Eduardo said it. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> so you liked it because it was Egyptians in space. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and seeding... Uh, seeding worlds okay fair enough so um we have these articles um this one and uh the other one is um oh no what happened so we have this one and then the other one is called um appropriately enough well if we can find it which is always a joy when uh it's getting a here it is this is another piece of fan art another uh fan movie poster so these are the two articles gladiator unmasked part one and part two and as we said we can probably write a third uh part to it to, to get through the rest of the film um it's just something we've just never gotten around to um it was getting really long and it was re getting really uh, uh it was becoming more of a book than it is like, you know, multiple different articles. And I don't think most people just don't put that much importance on a film. So it wasn't getting a lot of traction. So we felt, well, you know what, if, if someone really wants the rest of it, and besides we explained most of what needed to be shared in this live stream anyway. So um, we were getting into a lot of detail in that, uh, and see, we, there's the uh, the the one about the locations, the um, tree of life, and the locations. So if you're interested, <clears throat> um, we can recommend the article on the simple basis of if you enjoy or if you find value in in hearing or or sh sharing um hearing or sharing experiences of films then um then we can do more live streams about it or you can read that article and get a get a deeper sense of just how much depth there is in some of these properties like our like our Star Wars video, which is two and a half hours long, 
um, like our article on Amadeus, for instance, the more you can learn the keys and get a sense of and connect to the those deeper esoteric meanings, and the more they become conscious, the more you become conscious of those esoteric meanings. You see, this is the skill, this is developing that muscle of the consciousness, that discernment and that the eyes to see and the ears to hear, the ability to see all of life this way and to see these esoteric, beautiful esoteric truths emerging all over the place in, in sometimes the most unexpected places. Benjamin Raphael says, Dante's Inferno, the animation, is a good movie too. It seems to have esoteric meanings hidden. Well, of course, Dante's Inferno is probably one of the most esoteric books uh, ever written, epic poem, whatever you want to call it. And we've watched, we've watched that movie on a live stream on Facebook. We did a, we did a watch party on Facebook of Dante's Inferno. In fact, it might still be on Facebook on Atlas Information under videos. You'll have to check if you if you're interested. But uh, but it was because it's on YouTube. If we believe, if we remember correctly, it was on YouTube. Or what we did was we, we downloaded it, we played it, we uploaded, it, and we did a watch party on um, on Atlas Information on a live stream. And um, yeah, it's a good one. It's good. And what's interesting is they had different artists work on different sections of the film. So the film is, is broken up into the different cantos, right? Because it is an epic poem. And it's it's the film is broken up into the different cantos. And each canto was given to a different animation, animation team. So the animation styles are very different. But this but the story that's being told is this is is the, the one uh connected uh story. Don, uh, Dylan says they revolt. Okay, so he's, he's going back to Stargate here, I guess. They revolt against the tyrants, shows similar power struggles between egos and being a huge, true human. Going to check the last duel and, and the kingdom of heaven out as soon as possible. Well, we're glad if, uh, we're glad if you, you found a recommendation here. Eduardo says, but also the insidious seeding and perverting our mythology to blind humanity and suit their needs, much like the Bene Gesserit in Dune. Again, this is in reference to Stargate. So, interesting. Um, that is a... There is... There is a... a a delicate line that's being um, walked on there. And that is the, because you know the atheists in the Black Lodge want to promote that, agenda, that, that narrative, that mythology is seeded or planted to manipulate humanity. That's a narrative that 
the Black Lodge is constantly pushing. That it's all that it's contrived, that all mythology and religion and scripture is contrived for manipulation. Now, the reason why it's a fine line that there that is being trodden there when a film puts forth that as part of their that's part of its narrative is because the black lodge does in fact plant false seeds and false mythologies and false scriptures but but the the black lodge does it by degenerating by degenerating the meaning and the interpretations of the mythologies and scriptures so in the case of dune uh, you'll have to help me out eduardo he's uh paul atreides is the itzak uh oh, what's what's his name the 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 messiah figure right um, and that that the prophecy what might have been planted by the Bene Gesserits, but Paul's abilities are Paul's abilities. Yeah, uh, quit. That's it. That's it. Right. Quitzatz Haderach. Okay, but Paul's sister, who's born, who has the sight, right, and she has the sight and the voice. She at the end of at the end of the 1984 Lynch film, she says, you know, like somebody says, you know, how can this be or whatever? Because and she says, because Paul is the Quitzatz Haderach. So there's this notion here that 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 that, that there's there's planted. Uh, prophecy and mythology and whatever that it's that's manipulated that there's an there's a manipulative aspect to it but there's also an actual factual level to it that there's something real going on there it's not all contrived it's not all just bullshit manipulation it's there's this it's it's a double-edged sword in other words and clearly when we look at religions, we look at scriptures, and we look at the way religion and scripture has been used, look at kingdom of heaven, look at the fanatics, look at the Templars. Remember the debate in the uh, in the in the uh, the castle in Jerusalem before the king, and they're getting up and saying, they're saying that that uh, we must we should we should go out and meet. The opponents of God. God wills it. And he says, uh, an army carrying the cross of Je holy, the holy cross of Jesus Christ cannot be defeated. Right? These, like so, so clearly there are egotistical, false interpretations, applications, twisting and corrupting, the politicization of, of uh scripture, of the Bible, of Christianity itself goes all the way back to Constantine. And the and the um, and his use of Christian symbols in battle, and his decision to make 
the holy the, to create the Holy Roman Empire and uh, and and appropriate all of the Christianity, right? And he did that for political reasons, right? So this is a long, 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 long tradition. But that doesn't mean that all of Christianity was contrived, because there are atheists and intellectuals and theologians and historians who put forth exactly that narrative that Jesus was an invention of the Romans. That he never existed, or, or the Greeks, or whoever, you know, there, there's so many different theories and there's so many different competing, you know, beliefs and whatever around it. So clearly, both things are happening. There are real masters and avatars. They did real, they had real lives. They did, they, they, they did their ministry, they had their teachings. They brought, they brought forth the knowledge. They had their disciples. They had their followers. Uh, Jesus performed his miracles. He delivered his teachings, etc. And then at the Nicene Council, Constantine throws out 60 books of the Bible, including well over 30 Gnostic Gospels, including the Peace to Sophia. And, and, and he leaves in four. That was a political decision. That was not a theological, that Constantine was not a theologian. Benjamin says, and thank you for sharing your insights about the movie, The Kingdom of Heaven. It's a really beautiful movie that I've watched several times. The way you explained selected lines really brought it to new light. You're welcome. It's, it's one of our favorites. It's, we're, we're on the fence of which is his, which is his uh, masterpiece, Gladiator or Kingdom of Heaven, which really... It's really hard for us to choose because we love Kingdom of Heaven so, so much. The corrupting of the ancient sacred teachings and mythologies to create the effect of an insidious seeding that you mentioned reminded us of the parable of the seed that Jesus taught. Yes, the seed that falls on, what is it? The seed that falls on the rocks, isn't it? Or the, the seed that falls on hard clay versus the seed that falls on good soil? And it's uh, yes, that's a um, that's well uh, that's very insightful. It's well uh, well uh, well said, Benjamin. So so then we see then there's this uh, it, thematically then it's uh, in some of these uh, properties, these sci-fi properties like Dune, right? The seeding of these uh, these religious prophecies and so on and so forth um, for political gain and for economic gain. But in Dune, it's it's well, it's it's political, yes, but it's also it's it's economic. It's both, right? So it's power. It's power. Whoever controls whoever controls Arrakis controls the universe, right? In the in the universe of Dune, because of the because of the properties of spice, right? The spice must flow. And whoever controls the flow of spice are the richest, most powerful uh, house in in the uh, in the political structure of uh, of Dune. Uh, they're the they're the favorite house of the of the emperor, right? And and of course, Dune is all about the emperor uh, essentially plotting to wipe out the House of Atreides by 
giving them rule over Arrakis only to double-cross them and have the House Harkonnen come and take it back. Um, so that's the political intrigue side. But for us, uh, Dune was all... For us, Dune is all Paul. For us, it's always been about Paul. And for us, the Bene Gesserit, the, the fact that it's the women... Right, it's that that are the mystical element, the keepers of the mysticism of Dune. They're the keepers of that knowledge, and that the the, the they are the order of, I guess, what they do they call them? Do they call them witches? I'm not sure, but but that fact gives Dune such a profound significance because of the importance of the divine feminine in our lives and giving our divine mother her due like the divine feminine plays such an important role in all mythology in all spirituality in all religions mary the mother of christ the Divine Mother gives birth to the Christ. The Christ is born of the Divine Feminine, right? So this is, this is, this is, and, and Mary is so important, even in Catholicism. People, especially in places like, you know, we've, remember when we went to Guatemala and we went to some churches in Guatemala and these, these incredible, uh, uh, altars to mary like of course in in a in a catholic church you have the main vestibule you have the the sanctuary and the altar and and that's you know you have jesus on the cross always and that's the main thing but but in these south american churches the right hand vestibule was always devoted to mary and, and some of the statues were absolutely mind-bogglingly stunning and beautiful. And they're all adorned and like illuminated. And when we mean illuminated, we mean illuminated. Like with, with, with literally thousands of like Christmas lights and, and flowers and garlands and you name it. Just and candles everywhere. It was, uh, it, it was really heartwarming. That um, and that in many places around the world, but but probably because we experience this in Spain as well. It's a Spanish. I think it's it's more of a Spanish, um, like Spanish Catholicism has this this this. Oh, and Italian Catholicism as well has a very very deep de devotion to Mary. So in Catholicism, it's a little bit, it's, you know, it's a little, uh, uh, the balance scales are a little bit off depending on where you go. But certainly where we were in Guatemala and when we were in Spain um, and in Italy, uh, we get a lot of that devotion to Mary, you know, and, and a lot of like, you know, rosary praying and things like that. 
So Dune reflects that with the Bene uh, Gesserit. And Eduardo says, the fearful call them witches. Fair enough. But you know that Wiccans, you know, the word, there's nothing particularly evil about witch. It's just that it's a cultural thing that which is, witches have been associated with evil just because of Halloween and because of the burning of witches, the Salem witch trials, all that kind of stuff. But certainly for Wiccans, they don't consider themselves evil. <laughs> so, but, um, but now that you mention it, now that you mention, I seem to recall um, characters who are not friendly to Lady Jessica call her a witch to her face. If maybe I'm imagining that, but uh, maybe that's another film that uh, that I'm remembering. Well, have we talked out our topics for tonight? Anybody else have anything else to uh, to share? Oh, the guild navigators hate them. It's a very interesting aspect, you know, about Dune, about the, the Guild Navigators and how the spice, they, they, they need the spice because the spice is what expands their consciousness to be able to travel at faster than light speeds. Uh, and they need the ability to have the foresight, the, the, the power of premonition to see into the future. So as they're, as they're traveling through space, they don't they're traveling faster than the speed of light, so they have to be able to know ahead of time the and and, and navigate where the obstacles are going to be. They need to, they need that that expanded consciousness to be able to do that, and that the spice is what gives that to them. But that with prolonged use of the spice, they end up with with various different genetic mutations and deformations. That the spice. Uh, Yes, it's it, yes, it's expanding their consciousness on one level, but it's having a detrimental effect on them. That's a very insightful and intuitive inclusion in the mythology of Dune. And, of course, David Lynch took that maybe a little bit too far um, <laughs> in his visualization, in his uh, imagination of the Guild Navigator, but you must admit, they made for a very cool, impressive, albeit enigmatic entrance and introduction to the Guild Navigator. Um, it certainly uh, it was in, entirely a, a concoction of David Lynch's imagination. But but uh, it's impressive that big that big black uh, spice chamber, spice gas chamber. That uh, that that he enters into in that in that scene um, at the beginning of the movie. Uh, very enigmatic, because I was thinking I was what 11, 11 years old when I saw that in the movie theater, and uh, that was it was cool, but it was certainly enigmatic. I I I can't I can't uh, say that I knew what the hell was going on at that point. <laughs> And why that and why that guild navigator looked that way, <laughs> but uh, but in any case, that's just that's neither here nor there. Uh, oh yes, something that we thought to uh, 
to uh, share with you. Since we're on the topic of films and esoteric, uh, the esoteric wisdom in films, um, this is our article, Agony Made Us, right? The esoteric meaning of Amadeus. Um, this is, again, I happen to know that this is one of Eduardo's favorite films. Eduardo's on, who's on the live stream with us tonight. Uh, he and I uh, love talking about this film and our, our favorite scenes from this, from this film. There are, there, there are scenes that are funny, that, that are endearing, that are dramatic, that are clever, that are beautiful. It's just all, all in all, it's just a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful movie. Um, it's also what's so powerful about this movie is that, is that again, it is this wonderful uh, allegory of the false self and the, and the true self, the innermost being and the envy that the false self, the ego, feels toward the favorite of God, right? God's favorite. And, and the scheming and everything that takes place inside of it. Again, so every villain and every hero, every hero and adversary, and just about every film, when it's done right, when it's done with the right amount of passion and fervor, creates that, it creates that, that allegorical connection of universal truth that inside of us is a favorite of God, who's, a, who's a, our inner genius, that we can embody and bring his genius into the world and take dictation like Mozart did. But then also inside of us is this false self that's envious of that, that wants to pass off that work as his own. And that's what that's part of the plot of the of the of the film. And that and that and that Salieri has this brilliant plan that he's gonna murder Mozart. Or he's gonna, but he's gonna do it by by making Mozart write his own requiem mass. And him writing his own requiem mass, it's killing him. He says, Mozart, it's killing me. It's killing me. And his wife Constanza says, No, Wolfie, you're not allowed to work on this. He's not allowed to work on this. And but Salieri's plan is that Mozart's gonna die writing this requiem, but but Salieri's gonna go in take the pages, finish the, finish whatever notes he has to finish, and then Salieri will play it as his tribute to Mozart. Salieri will pass off Mozart's own Requiem Mass as his own. It's diabolical, it's subtle, it's genius, 
And remember how we started off tonight's live stream explaining how there are so many artists out there who are divinely inspired, but they believe that it's coming from, their, from them. That they're the smart one. They're the clever one. They're the genius. They're all Salieri's. They're all stealing their inner Mozart's genius and passing it off as their own. Benjamin says, I hope one day that there will emerge a Gnostic uh, civilization, maybe, where wisdom guides the heart and minds of men. But the world right now seems to be dominated by egocentric men, like heads of businesses and corporations and governments. Benjamin, the Gnostic civilization that you hope and pray for is on its way it will be called the golden age of the next humanity on this planet this humanity won't 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 experience such a civilization not not really not entirely not fully we're going to do our best to do what we can and we'll see how far we can get with it um but the the golden age of humanity begins is at the beginning of each humanity so that new humanity that next humanity will be will be planted from the best seeds from this humanity and um <clears throat> And then we will have, in that golden age, a truly Gnostic civilization. But it will be modest and small. There will be few of us, right, at the beginning of a humanity. If we are successful with the Atlas Project, uh, for example, the book that we're working on and, and all the other things, the other parts of the Atlas Project that we're working on, it is then we will play a role in preparing the seeds for that next humanity and we will do our best to show and um, examples of what we can expect to experience and know in the golden age so there's a transitional period where the seeds will begin to live and learn and practice and preach the way of the golden age now, here, now, in the Kali Yuga of this humanity, at the end of this humanity's Iron Age, because in order for seeds to make it through the end of the Kali Yuga into the Golden Age, right, takes what? It takes... Um, Well, here let's 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 show you this first because this is the the that's kind of a light-hearted one it takes an ark right and that's the story of noah's ark that's the story of noah there's two things you put in the ark the seeds and the knowledge the seeds meaning well i mean allegorically symbolically it's two of every animal right and then you're, you're able to seed the world again right 
but that's but we we have seed arcs. We actually have seed arcs and heirloom seeds in those arcs. But this is a this is a spiritual arc. On a practical level, we've talked about this in past live streams. Perhaps we'll do one again about this. This is what we call the Archaeon. Arc, meaning action, reset, reconciliation, renewal, Christic humanity. Actionable, reset, reconciliation, and renewal of Christic humanity. Arch. And aeon, meaning to act inward, onward, now. It's a call to action. Here and now. Act in, on, Tao. All of that is in here. The archons and the aeons. You may have heard these terminolo this terminology before. The Tao consists of both light and dark, severity and mercy, the two pillars of the tree of life. The Iron Age, the Kali Yuga, is ruled by the Black Lodge. It is, it is the Saracens coming to reclaim the kingdom of Jerusalem But the soul, the souls inside the walls are what we must fight for. We can't save the civilization. We can't save this humanity. But the monads, the souls, the seeds, the best seeds, the best souls, we can fight for and we can save. And we can negotiate with mechanical nature in a uh, uh, the terms of our surrender to the inevitable, our surrender to the inevitable destruction of humanity. But yeah, how do we do that? With an arc, with an archaeon. Because, because that, because the 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 archons work for mechanical nature. And the aeons are divine nature. And just as Balian uh, negotiates that that those terms with Salahadin and the Saracens are taking back what was taken from them by the Christians, just as this planet is going to be taken back from this humanity, we can negotiate the safe passage of the souls, the awakened souls, the best seeds to traverse the end of the battle and the and the transfer of ownership the transfer of power in other words the death of this humanity the 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 walls return to their rightful owners from which it was stolen or borrowed because these bodies the civilization came from the earth the earth lent this humanity, all that this humanity has and all that this humanity uses and 
mechanical nature is going to take it back. It's inevitable. But the awakened souls, they can be saved and their bodies, we can negotiate with mechanical nature. Mechanical nature will let us keep our bodies and use our bodies and use the seeds and the plants. That's why we have pea pod life as part of the Atlas project. Ecosystems, indoor ecosystems. So when mechanical nature makes the uh, atmosphere outside inhospitable to humanity, humanity has indoor ecosystems to sustain it. Because the environmental catastrophes and the earthquakes and all the other stuff that are going to be happening and the tsunamis and all the other stuff that's going to be happening, wiping this, this human this civilization off the face of the planet, we have an arc. And in that arc go the seeds and the knowledge. Everything in here, everything in the Arcanon, all these, these seven aspects are the souls, are the soul of an enlightened humanity are the foundation on which a new enlightened humanity can be built. This is the Ark Aeon. We might go into this in more detail in uh, a future podcast, but our future live stream. But uh, we're getting, of course, we're past the three-hour mark now, and I'm sure uh, many of you want to get <laughs> want to get to uh, to the rest of your evening or to get to bed, as the case may be. Um, Benjamin says, are they reclaiming us through the transhuman agenda they are pushing for to make humanity like Borgs? Just a thought when you mentioned the Kali Yuga. Actually, we have a meme and an article that talks about this. Um, the article is here. Um, we put the link, we put the link in the chat, Benjamin, and, uh, and here's it there as well, but it's on, it's called now cast. The storm is not on its way. The storm is already here, right? There it is. There's on, um, there's the, there's, there's the, uh, the graphic on the, uh, for the article and, um, this is a lengthy one, okay, but it's important because it explains a great deal of what's the, the nature of the Kali Yuga and more importantly, the nature of the divine feminine and the creative process as a destructive process. And it's there's a lot that we cover clearly. So this is a, a lengthy one. But here is this meme that we were describing where what you're talking about here, when you say uh, the, uh, sorry, that's, uh, when you say the technocracy, the, uh, to make humanity like Borgs, that's the technocratic socialist utopia, uh, the fear-based transhumanist covidocracy. That's this first twisted vision of the future of humanity. Now, this is being done on purpose by the Black Lodge. Why? Because they want to create human 2.0, which is, which is not a human. 
which is a mute, which is a mutant. They're changing the genetic code and they're creating, and they're doing transhumanism and they're doing the, the embedding of micro uh, nano computers and whatnot and nano, nano sensors and nano computers and communication devices that are going to be hooked up to the 5G network. So the internet of things, we, we are going to be the internet of things. That's their plan. Why? To create mutated Borg-like exactly as you describe it, right? Now that's a horrific nightmarish scenario and all of and all of uh, science fiction has been seeding us with how nightmarish a scenario that is right that's something to be feared that's something to be avoided at all costs and you know what those science fiction properties are right it is to be avoided at all costs of course there's a huge contingency to think it's cool they can't wait for human 2.0. They think it's awesome. They think it's they, they there's a there's a large transhumanist community out there that believe that this is the real evolution of this humanity is to become Borg-like, to become more machine-like. And there's lots of people who can't wait to be able to install, uh, 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 you know, what uh, Wi-Fi and hard drives, not hard drives, but you know, solid-state drives that can interface with their brain imagine if you wouldn't if you didn't have to look up google or look up wikipedia you could just think and oh there's the wikipedia article right people think oh that's cool okay it's a nightmarish uh frankensteinian humanity that that the black lodge is envisioning here that's twisted vision a now of course out of fear and out of sheer horror of that, right? There's a natural reaction to that. And it just so happens that the Black Lodge has created an alternative vision for people to fall into, which is also a trap. We call it Twisted Vision B. Twisted Vision B is the new age belief in the golden age, the new golden age and the coming mass global awakening of this humanity, which is just a repurposed, repackaged and rebranded version of the Christian rapture, which was sold to Christians, that Jesus is going to come and rule the world for a thousand years. And that all the believers are going to be taken up into heaven. That's called, that's called the rapture. And then the uh, the the uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to wipe everything else. And then Jesus is going to come back, and all the believers are going to come back, and Jesus is going to rule for a thousand years. As part of this twisted vision, B, uh, we have the New Age's belief in the coming golden age the mass global awakening, but we also have nature, pleasure, and ancestor worship. It's a combination of native and new age pseudo-spirituality. This is where we get all of these psychedelic use. This is where we get you know, all the crystals and the Reiki and, and all the other type of pseudo-spirituality stuff, the superficial pseudo-spirituality stuff, and all the this 5d 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 this 5d that 
5D ascension, people call it, right? And taking psychedelics and going on their trips and everything else. All of that, all of that has a purpose. Because mechanical nature needs, needs a significant contingency of the humanity to be primal and savage, to behave in primal and savage ways. So, Twisted Vision A leads to uh, the metaphysical destruction of humanity because human 2.0 is a mutated abomination. And individuality, history, tradition, religion, culture, and consciousness are lost to the techno-hive mind. A humanity like that cannot endure, cannot survive, must be destroyed. That's step three, physical destruction of uh, the, the physical destruction of humanity. However, over here, step 2B, st step 2B is the metaphysical degeneration of humanity, where the true self is lost not to the techno hive mind, but to attachments, the false self, pleasure, tribe, relations, drugs, lunar bodies, nature worship, ancestor worship. Sound familiar? Shamanism, psychedelic use, all the off-grid people, all the all the uh, all the, the the doomsday preppers who are like who are like the, these are the like you have the survivalists, all the people who are going off grid, they're starting their intentional communities, they're starting their communes, they're all going off and they're doing their their new age communities and Aurobinda and India and all these places, right? And they all believe that they're ushering in the new golden age. But 5D is as far as they go. And 5D, right, the astral plane, mental and astral body, that's, those are two of the four bodies of sin. In every film that we talked about tonight, the hero is Tipperet. The human soul is willpower in Tipperet. In the sixth dimension, that is where we need to awaken. We need to awaken our consciousness, which is in the sixth dimension. We have to follow the advice of Proximo. We have to win the crowd. We have to restore Rome to her true self. Our Rome in microcosm must be restored to our true self, to the will of our inner Marcus Aurelius. And we do that by following the guidance of our, of our Proximo. But we do that by fighting in the arena as Maximus, willpower. That's, that's all in the sixth dimension. The monad is in the sixth dimension. So all these people talking about 5D, 5D, 5D. There's only one place you can go from 5D and that's down. If you're doing psychedelics, if you're doing 
polyamorous relationships and group sex and all these sex cults and new age sex cults and new age sex practices like Osho and all these other people and they teach Tantra, Tantra this and Tantra that and Awaken Kundalini and Tantra, Tantra, Tantra. Nobody teaches white Tantra. They teach black Tantra. You can't go up doing these things. And nature worship. They're worshiping the elementals of nature and they're worshiping physical nature, mechanical nature. Remember, we said mechanical nature is going to take back what's hers. There's two, there's two ways. One, destroy all the superfluous stuff. But then the second part is to degenerate and devolve a large contingency of this humanity because mechanical nature needs a large contingency of humanity to be primal, mechanical, and savage. When you look at the so-called great apes of this world, chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, you, the, 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 the great silverbacks, and whatnot. You are not looking at evolved animals. You are looking at devolved human beings. Those are remnants of previous humanities. And if you doubt this, recognize that every native Aboriginal people everywhere in the world are remnants of once high civilizations. And that everywhere you go in the world, all native Aboriginal spirituality is all bundled up in nature worship, Many of them, they, they, a lot of them use um, tattoos, tattooing, piercings, scarring, all sorts of ways that they're adorning their physical bodies for spiritual purposes. And they're, and they, and now look at the West. Oh, and they all, all of them, without exception, do the communal dancing to the drumbeat, to the perennial rhythm of mechanical nature. The boom, 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 boom. And the jumping up and down, like in Africa. And the higher you jump, right? The, more, the higher you jump, the more attractive you are to a potential mate, right? Like the men in the, uh, the, uh, the, the Bushmen of the Kalahari, if we have that right. Uh, the Kalahari Desert Bushmen in Africa, and they're jumping up and down, and and whoever jumps the highest or whatever is the, is considered the most masculine and the most desirable among the among, among the women. And they have these this like these mating rituals, right? To the boom 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 of the drum and so on and so forth. Look at the so-called culture in the West these days. Look at the so-called music that is uh that's being pushed and and when when dance clubs were still open before covid look at the music being played and look at how the people were dancing we can still recall a time when dancing meant 
you danced with a partner and you danced and you and you you danced but jumping up and down or grinding to the to the beat in a dark you know place boom 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 that's all there is and then really savage brutal violent vile lyrics Mechanical nature, ego, divides and conquers. So what are we going to do? Let's give them this brutal Frankensteinian nightmare, this Orwellian, Borg-like, Terminator, Matrix-like nightmare, a technocratic COVIDocracy, COVIDiacy, over here. Why? So that all those who are repulsed by that well we're going to kept capture them over here on this side you find all this you find all this technology repulsing you you're repulsive you don't want to be a part of that techno hive mind no problem mother nature is waiting with her open arms and she'll embrace you Come and return to Mother Nature's bosom. Like every, like every civilization on the decline, there's always people in that civilization. There's always a contingency in that civilization. When the crops are failing, when everything's going to shit, for example, in the Aztec and the Mayan empires, when the crops were failing, the cities had outgrown themselves, they couldn't feed the population. And so what were the Mayans doing? They were doing mass murders mass human sacrifice why to spill the blood back into the earth to try to appease mother nature to try to give prana and energy back so that the crops would grow well a good contingency the mayan civilization said screw you and the aztecs and the and, and the incas uh, before them said screw you we know how to we know how to live in harmony with mother nature and they went back into the jungle They, they abandoned civilization, they abandoned everything, they went back into the jungle. And the descendants of the Olmecs and the Toltecs and all of the, those are the natives who live right across North America and South America today. Though they were all members of high civilizations at one point. They gave themselves back to nature and nature welcomed them with open arms, but mechanical nature, mechanical nature. Joel says, this makes sense, Atlas. A story we remembered several times during our awakening is this one about the Divine Nine and the Council of Seven. We are of the Council of Seven to take back the power from the rebel, rebel forces of, or the rebel forces of the Nine, of the Divine Nine, whom rebelled against the Council of Seven, who lent the world to the Nine. We remembered all this and wrote it down. We are the Council of the Seven to take back the power from the rebel forces of the Nine who, who, who rebelled against the Council of the Seven. We lent the world to the Nine. Okay. We remembered all this and wrote it down. 
Okay. Uh, Eduardo said meta, ready player one. Uh, you're referring to Facebook meta, that, that, that nonsense. Yes, that's another thing that's going to come along with this, and that is the they want to this whole content streaming thing this whole idea of content and everything else and virtual everything and right they want people to be ever more asleep right so that's and live in fantasy virtual realities um it's easy to control people that way. It's like the Matrix, right? Everybody's in their little pods, dreaming. And then while they're doing that, the Black Lodge is just siphoning their energy. That's what the Matrix is about. Okay, so thank you all for joining us. We hope uh, you found the, uh, the discussion uh useful uh, helpful enlightening in some way perhaps even entertaining we don't know certainly the logos is speaking to us all the time and the logos does have some messengers preferred messengers that it, that it is able to inspire and work through so if we can help you to see that for yourself and recognize that for yourself, then perhaps in the future you can you can find more examples of it and you can you can hear the logos speaking to you through your favorite books, your favorite television program, your favorite music, or your favorite movies, perhaps movies that you've seen in the past that you can go and revisit and discover things and realize that's why I love it so much. I, I, I connected, I've always connected to something on a deep, deep, deep level, but I could never put my finger on it. I, I could only see the things on the surface, but I felt a deep connection to it. Our hope is that you can develop the eyes to see and the ears to hear so that you can make, become conscious and aware of those deep connections that you feel and see them and know them. Why? What those deep connections are those deep universal truths that are resonating inside the very atom noose of your being. And there and therein lies um, a great hope that we have for you and everybody who interacts with our live streams, interacts with our blogs, our videos, and uh, hopefully in 2022, our books and our other projects. The Atlas Project, right? Because we want for everyone to become a seed, become a seed and have a place in the Archaeon, in the Ark. That's, that's our job. Everything else will take care of itself. Everything else in its own time. But here and now, we have to be infinitely practical. And to be able to see the living, breathing Word of God writ large all around us 
in modern mythologies that we are not forsaken, we are not forgotten, and that Lord of the Rings and Dune and Star Wars and The Matrix and Amadeus and Gladiator and Kingdom of Heaven and and the, these are real. These are these are at, these are at our fingertips, and they were all born in our lifetime, at least in terms of the films, right? Like we did, we talked about Lord of the Rings, right? And so, yes, it's beautiful to go back and study and comprehend ancient uh, scripture and ancient religions and everything else. That's wonderful and beautiful. But there's more. And we don't have to go back thousands of years and tens of thousands of years. Here and now in our lifetime, there's something, there's something precious about that that we should not discount. We know of some Gnostics who have gone to great lengths to talk about, for example, Wagner and Wagner's opera, operas, and so on, Tristan and Isolde, and the Ring Cycle, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And and you know, uh, and okay, good. But those two are now hundreds of years old. So, what about that which is here and now? What about that which is so close and so near and dear? that has touched the hearts of millions and millions and millions of fans. Now, we also know we can't be naive. Many of those fans, are they're not going to change. They're not going to awaken. They're not going to suddenly realize that, that their love for Star Wars or their love for whatever is any deeper than their, their collecting the toys or their love of the characters, their love of the story, their love of whatever, their, their love of their nostalgia for their childhood or whatever the case may be. Because idolatry is idolatry. And trying to turn, like that's like trying to turn a born-again Christian into a Gnostic. Can be done but it's not easy to do. Once someone has fallen into the trap of idolatry and ident identifying and become obsessed with the surface level iconography and the literal translations and literal understandings, once someone is, has doubled down on that level, it's very, very, very difficult for them to start peeling back the, uh, the veneer and start digging deeper underneath because they've already become identified on that surface level and we've talked about this before because we've talked about cosplay in fandom and that cosplay has a very very easy explanation for why people want to dress up like superheroes and why like they're like the characters from their favorite properties and that is because those properties are allegorical and symbolic in nature they're mythologies and it's easier to dress up like the gods and goddesses than it is to live like one, than it is to become one. It's easier to dress up and pretend to be Superman 
than it is to make of oneself a superman or a superwoman or a wonder woman. This always happens. You go back to you go back to the Rococo, you go back to the masquerade ball of the so-called enlightenment. You go before that the Rococo, before that the Romans, before that the Greeks, the Dionysian festival. And then of course in the Celts and everywhere people have been dressing up like the gods and the spirits of the spirit realm forever and pretending to be so they have the feeling of belonging so they can get the feeling the sensations the belief that's the ego's clever way baiting and switching right so people who get, lose themselves in World of Warcraft, where they are veritable gods in that virtual realm. People who, who become the, the PC master race, people who become masters of this video game or that video game, and they can conquer any level and they play in hardcore mode where death is final. And, and they... They just, and they, they lose themselves in these hobbies. But it gives them that, that feeling of power and control and magic and wonder and all these mythological symbolism and stories and everything else and these allegories and these archetypes. And they can feel the connection through to all of these things. But they get lost in the trappings and the superficial. And they, they, they don't allow things like Dungeons and Dragons, to speak to their soul and advise them of, oh, I get it. So I have to go into the dungeons of my own subconscious mind and defeat the dragons there so that I can gain experience points and gain levels. And the more levels I gain, the more powers, the more abilities I gain, which then lets me go deeper into the dungeons to fight bigger dragons and collect more loot, more treasure. More, more, the treasure that I collect is the consciousness that I'm regaining and recovering from the, from that the dragons stole because the dragons hoard the treasure, they hoard the loot. And the experience I'm getting from doing this lets me gain levels. And then the higher I go, the lower I can go. And the higher I go, and the lower I can go. It's a spiral. And then if you cut the two sides off of the spiral, that spiral. Looks like a ladder. Dante's ladder, Jacob's ladder. It's all connected. It's all connected. So that's why we, we do spend the time, like tonight, hopefully, you know, not always looking backwards, not always looking back into, the, into antiquity. It's good. It's fine to do so. But recognize that we have our own mythology. We are being spoken to by the logos here and now. Or we have our own divinely inspired stories and narratives and archetypes that are speaking to us, that are showing us the way, and that we can connect to and comprehend by virtue of, of living vicariously through those characters. 
and having a cathartic experience, as Plato would call it, whereby through the struggles and suffering of those characters, we, we see ourselves because, because of the universal truths embodied in the symbols and allegories. And we recognize, aha, okay, I, I need to fight for the, for the truth, the honor of my innermost divine mother. Who's defending the sexual force, the precious sexual energy from being raped, from being appropriated and dominated and raped by the Dark Lord and the minion of the Dark Lord who feels entitled to come and dominate and rape my divine mother, my sexual force? Am I fighting to protect the honor of my divine mother? Or am I neglecting her and leaving her unguarded at home so that she can be raped while I'm away, while I'm not paying attention to her? That's why we should always remember our Divine Mother. And when the egos come to rape her, it's not so easy for them to do. It's not so easy for us to neglect and to abuse our sexual force or sexual energy when we're remembering our Divine Mother. And when you see the rape scene in The Last Duel, and you remember that the next time you're about to give in to an ego, uh, give in to a desire, and you remember your Divine Mother, and you remember that this desire that you're giving into that your consciousness is whispering to, uh, to you, your consciousness is telling you to what, you know, not to not, not to go ahead. And you remember your divine mother, and you remember that rape scene. This is this is for us powerful tool a tool of imagination and a tool on the path when you realize right when when your desires are abusing the sexual force your egos are having their way with your divine mother because you're not paying attention because you're absent because you've forgotten her, you've abandoned her, you've left her helpless, vulnerable. It's, it gives one pause. But that's what allegories and stories can do. That's why the feminine in heroic stories is, is always part of the goal to free the princess from the dragon to to awaken sleeping beauty to awaken snow white or rapunzel who's locked up in the tower or whatever the case may be because the psyche is feminine and so is our sexual force our divine mother our divine feminine is what gets victimized in us because she has the power 
It's her energy that the egos want, that the egos feed on. And psyche, consciousness, is feminine. And that's what they want to enslave. So it's something, something to keep in mind, something to meditate on, and something to remember when you're watching films like Amadeus and films by Ridley Scott and other and films like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Bring all of your meditative and, and Gnostic awareness and teachings to these works, and you will connect to them on a level that you never have before, and they will inform you and your practice in your life in a powerful and meaningful way, just as all mythologies do when we penetrate past the surface into their esoteric heart and soul. In other words, into the timeless universal truths. And, the, and because when we do that, we connect to the source of truth inside of us, which inspired these works and which have the, the power, the potential, and the longing to inspire us and bring into the world works of inspiration and insight and imagination and and uplifting illumination and all the other wonderful services that we have within us to deliver to this world whatever they may be in whatever field whatever area for which we were prepared in this lifetime because not everybody's going to be an artist and not everybody is going to be a filmmaker and not everybody's going to be a musician or a poet or a philosopher or a Gnostic instructor or whatever. You can be a house painter. You can be a chef. You can be a dog walker. You can be a babysitter. You can be a nurse. You can be a doctor. You can do everything in an inspired and illuminated way when you've connected to that source of inspiration inside of you. So connect to the inspired truths and the illuminated guidance in art and you will be making the connection to the same source inside of you. Thank you again all for uh, joining us this evening. We're going to uh, we're going to call it a night now. So thank you all, and uh, we hope to see you again all on Friday and certainly uh, next week. So have a good night, everyone. Oh.